Right. Uh, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the May 1st, 2020, uh, 2021 edition of the Saturday Free School live stream. Uh, today, we'll be discussing the 60th anniversary of the defeat of the Bay of Pigs invasion and its significance. Uh, today, I'm joined by uh, Vincent, Emily, uh, Dr. Montero, Brandon Stanford, and we're joined by a special guest from uh, California, Miss Catherine Murphy who's uh, lived in Cuba for about 10 years and has also worked as a journalist and filmmaker in Cuba and uh, throughout Latin America. Um, and we're uh, very happy that she shared some important video clips with us about the Bay of Pigs uh, invasion and significance. So um, Catherine, would you like to uh, say a bit more about yourself or about the uh, videos? Sure, sure. Well, uh, first of all, happy International Workers Day to you all. I'm very glad to be joining you on Workers Day and um, thank you for having me to the free school. I have attended some free schools in this you know, pandemic year that you all have gone virtual, gone onto Zoom. I've wanted to come and join the free school in person for years, years. So now that in the pandemic, in the moments that I've been able to Zoom in, I've just learned so much every, you know, every free school experience that I've been able to join, I learned so much and um, just am really uh, in awe of what y'all are doing. Appreciate so much the depth, your learning, your collective learning um, journey, struggle, community. It's really beautiful. And I think, you know, cause I've spent so much of my life kind of like trying, grappling with issues of like liberation education, you all are doing liberation education in practice. And uh, so it's a really wonderful thing to see and to be part of. And so I'm really, really happy to be uh, joining you all today and especially on Workers' Day and especially coming out of the days that are celebrating the 60th anniversary of Cuba's defeat of the US backed invasion at the Bay of Pigs, which happened in April, 1961. So you know, the thing is that, I, and I, again, I said, and I said to, to Dr. Montero, Doc, that, uh, as y'all call him, the other day, I was like, well, I'm not a Bay of Pig, Pigs expert. And he, and he sent me back this beautiful message, liberated educator message of like, experts don't exist. There are no experts. Like, we're not expecting you to be an expert. So uh, thank you for that. So, but I think the thing is, you know, so just sort of put it in the context. I think what I'm really interested in, put the Bay of Pigs in the context of an, an attempt of the Cuban ruling class with backing from the United States to overthrow the Cuban revolution, which is really what they were trying to do. Well, why were they trying to overthrow the Cuban revolution? So, you know, the Cuban revolution is something that had been in uh, underway since before Cuba, you know, since Cuba tried, got its independence from Spain. So I think it's impossible to understand the Cuban revolution without understanding the Spanish-American War and Cuba's long struggle um, against colonialism, against the colonial rule of Spain for independence, sovereignty, and self-determination that was also in the case of Cuba, deeply, deeply connected to the struggle against slavery. In other parts of Latin America, sometimes the independent struggles were like the national ruling class elite, um, mostly Spanish white, 
you know, or white identified, European, European identified, um, to overthrow their relationship with the, you know, European colonizer, colonizing powers because they wanted to all of the power for themselves. Well, the Cuban independence struggle was completely different than that. It was totally bottom up. It was very multiracial and it was, it, it, they connected independence from Spain uh, with the necessary abolition of slavery. And so it was like building and, you know, one of the main generals, Antonio Maceo was Afro-Cuban, one of the main um, people, you know, figures in the Cuban revolution was Jose Marti, who's someone that we don't usually learn about in the United States, but a really important liberation thinker from that, you know, era in Latin America, who said that, you know, they were in this nation building, right? They were fighting for sovereignty, independence, self-determination for the abolition of slavery and to build what they called what Marti called a nation uh, by all, for all, no, by all, with all, and for the good of all. Con todos, por todos, y para el bien de todos. By all, with all, and for the good of all. And that is the, one of the foundational concepts of the Cuban Revolution. So here's Spain fighting, you know, a totally uh, asymmetrical war against the Spanish colonizers. They win basically with machetes. And, uh, in the like 11th hour, the US intervenes, uh, claims victory, and takes basically economic and political power over Cuba. And this is what we learn here is the Spanish-American War. Like they never even grapple in US mainstream history. Well, why was this, why was the Spanish-American War fought on the island of Cuba, right? And then basically the US, you know, took not only Cuba, but Cuba, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, and Guam from Spain and has had a colonial relationship, you know, ever since then and tr tried to maintain political and economic power ever since then over these former Spanish um, dominated territories. So there was a military invasion for four years and then they went into what they called their period of the Republic, which was basically Cuba was a Republic, but it was entirely dominated politically and economically by the United States. And these key sectors like the sugar industry were basically taken from Spanish control to US control. So their struggle, their hard, hard fought struggle for independent sovereignty and self-determination was usurped by the United States and frustrated. And that whole period is super important to study. Like 1902, the birth of the Republic to 1959 when the Cuban revolution took power, there was a long, long struggle, generations long struggle for the kind of a nation, you know, by all, with all, and for the good of all, right? So when the Cuban revolution, then the 50s, it intensified the fight under, you know, they had peak moments where they, where they had big advances, um, and, but, but they also in the 50s. And so in the 50s, um, you know, the attack on the Mankata garrison happened like 1953, July 26, 1953. And then the movement um, for independence took on the name 26th of July movement. And that's when Fidel Castro and Raul, Raul Castro like really came on the scene. And um, the 26th of July movement allied with like the uh, union movement. There was a lot of sugar workers, which was their main industry. 
and, and an urban underground, which was connected to a student movement. So these multiple movements came together and were able to take victory. They overthrew US-backed dictator Fulgencio Batista and declared themselves an independent nation for the first time since Columbus landed. So, and their platform, and I only have it in Spanish, but I dug it out after uh, the, other, the other day when we decided to, um, the, the platform for the Cuban revolution was laid out in this text called History Will Absolve Me, which, you, which by Fidel Castro, which was his self-defense, his defense of himself following the attack on the Moncada garrison. So they were taken prisoner, Raul Castro, Fidel Castro, and a number of their comrades. Some people were killed um, on both sides, and then others were taken prisoner. And Fidel Castro, who was uh, studying law, said he'd, wanted to, he'd said he wanted to defend himself. He refused a lawyer, he wanted to defend himself, and this was his defense statement. Uh, and he basically lays out the platform for the Cuban revolution. And it's really, really interesting. I mean, you see it, so this is his defense. So they said, you know, they basically laid out the, the problems, the fundamental problems that the nation was facing under, you know, U.S. domination and a, and a corrupt ruling elite. And they laid out the platform for the Cuban revolution. So this was land reform, housing reform, you know, all of these key, taking national control of key sectors, because something like 50 per 7, 50, 50, 50, like, I think it was 57% of land was owned and or controlled by US individuals and corporations. And a lot of the key sectors, the sugar industry, the, the electric company, the telephone company, they were all controlled by the United States or US owned, right, and operated. So they laid out their platform and one of the pillars of their platform was education, was education for all and bringing in, you know, making education accessible to everyone and bringing in sectors of the population that have been completely, you know, systematically and, and uh, institutionally marginalized or excluded from education. So that's one of the things that main things that I've studied. So anyway, so I went to Cuba in the 90s, um, right in what they call the post-Soviet period, special period. Um, and I was there from 92 to 2003, most of, you know, most of that time, that 10 year period, I lived in Havana. I did a degree, I did a master's degree at the University of Havana and I was really interested in studying the social development model that was uh, of the Cuban revolution. So we did a little bit of like studying development theory, which was for me foundational and sort of like dis, unlearning the way the sort of you know, US, Western, whatever, that development is some long path that some countries are farther along than others, right? And it's just like, to, you know, no, actually development and underdevelopment are two sides, right? Like the developed countries have gotten developed by sucking the blood. That it's, you know, that those two things exist together like in relationship, right? So I'm sure this is very basic for you all. But anyway, for me, I was like, boom, that just blew my mind. I think when I, when I, where it first went to Cuba, I was in my early 20s in 1992, and their economy had contracted massively because like 85% of Cuba's trade, Cuba was a member of Comic-Con, of course, and so 85% of their trade happened with the Soviet Union and other socialist countries of Eastern Europe, and they had favorable trade relations that were based on their cost of production for their goods. They made five-year agreements, you know, of 
of trade. And so they were able to stabilize their economy and to really enact their development plan in a way that very few former colonies have ever been able, right? With a vision to socialism and a nation for all. So, um, and again, like their commitment to socialism and then these deep roots in the anti-colonial struggle and the struggle against slavery are really um, connected in Cuba. I think that's important. So um, anyway, so I went there in the 90s and it was like the second, you know, was all the headlines here were like, you know, the last, <laughs> the last socialist country, tick, 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 how many days will it be to do before it falls, you know? And I got there and it was just like, I feel like every, I just realized that my whole thinking, you know, growing up in a somewhat progressive family, not a leftist family, but a somewhat progressive family in the US or, you know, I just feel like I saw that my thinking had all been limited to this one little box. And probably within the first 24 hours I was there, I was just like, it just, it, that shit just exploded, right? And, you know, it's so clear in Cuba and the Cuban, the way that Cuba has built socialism makes it so, and the Cuban social development model of the Cuban revolution makes it so clear that like, even in a country with a very, very limited resource, it, it really is possible to take care it is possible for everyone to have what they need every person every family every community every neighborhood it's just it's any country that's not doing it is because they don't want to right so they kind of expose a lie or many of the lies that we're told in the united states right we don't need to have i mean i feel like this is very basic for you all, but you know, for me, that was a very foundational um, learning that, right? Like at what point do you, you know, growing up in the US and receiving like mainstream US education, at what point do you feel like I've been lied to about everything my whole life, right? So Bay of Pigs. So the Cuban revolution comes to power and they start to enact that platform, right? They do a massive land reform. They nationalize the US companies. They do a massive land reform. They do a massive urban reform, which is basically whatever house you're living in, it belongs to you now. So there were huge, you know, there were slum lords and massive, like massive areas, whole entire neighborhoods that were like these sort of Caribbean boarding houses that were very common at the time, not just in Cuba, all across the West Indies and some parts of Latin America where people would rent a room and have a shared bathroom. Um, and it, the all you people were given use of fruct ownership titles, whatever space you live in, that is now your space. And if it's like a slumlord boarding house where it's just a room, you don't even have a bathroom, you don't have to pay anything for it. You get a use of fruct title, which is basically permanent use rights free of charge. And no one can kick you out. You cannot be evicted. You cannot be foreclosed on. And then the you know, the 1% or whatever, the Cuban ruling class, people that had, and a lot of US people were there, you know, people that had excessive amounts of property, it was expropriated. And you were allowed to keep, those people were allowed to keep one house, one primary residence, and one other residence, it could either be like, you had to have a reason. Like it was another town, it was in the countryside, it was on the beach. Okay, you could keep a second residence. Everything else, gone. And it was redistributed to people who didn't have housing. 
So then, and you know, the, the Cuban elite left, much of them left immediately and were sure that it, this wouldn't last very long because the US wouldn't permit it, right? And so a lot of those people just abdicated their property. They took, they took their, you know, overnight bags, whatever, and went to Miami, but they're still there 60 years later, many of them, right? So those, um, those people knew that the US was not going to allow this. And so they allied, the Cuban elite allied with the US government and tried to overthrow the Cuban revolution. And the peak moment of that was the invasion at the Bay of Pigs. And uh, so it was April, 1961. It was overthrown within 48 hours. And the stories that people tell um, are that you know people came out of their houses with their cooking knives. They were like, oh no, oh no. And so you have everything from like the, you know, the Cuban militia going right to the spots, you know, it's a, it's a small bay on the Southern coast of Cuba. Um, we, in the US, the, it's called the, the um, we learn about it as the Bay of Pigs, right? It's identified by the geographical bay, but in Cuba it's Playa Hidon, which is this bay, which is like the beachhead where it was landed, Playa Hidon. Um, and so there's a, a really powerful, small, modest, you know, very powerful museum right there in which they have like a wing of one of the US uh, air warplanes that was, that crashed. And, you know, the history is told from the Cuban perspective, like we were here, we were carrying out a revolution. It was happening. It was moving forward. We had vast support of the vast majority of people. And of course the US comes and tries to overthrow it, right? But because with the Cuban militia and Fidel Castro went them himself, they say that like the you know top military people were trying to stop him, like don't go, don't go. And he was like, oh yeah, no, I'm going. This is boots on the ground. This is like, and, and so Fidel Castro went in person, but also people came out of their homes and with their cooking knives, like, no. So it was a really important defeat of imperialism. And it, I think changed the psychological history, not only the very real history, you know, in terms of military history and who's controlling Cuba, but it was really a before and after moment for Latin America in terms of being able to take a different path, forge a different path and win over the United States. Um, so the videos I've now talked very long, much longer than I thought, but I, I think I, um, so the videos, the two videos I've shown that we can watch one. So I've put two here in the chat. One is a nine minute Cuban produced film on the Bay of Pigs invasion that um, some of my collaborators uh, and I uh, subtitled quickly as sort of a rush subtitle last week so that people in the English speaking world could see this history from a Cuban perspective. And then I also put a five minute clip about some of these uh, literacy teacher brigades that were happening in 1960. So um, should I, how do you want to do it? Do you want to watch them? Uh, yeah, sure. Let's start with, a little the, bit? maybe we could, yeah, we'll start with the one, the Cuban produced one. That'd be great. Yes, please. Thank you.
despertó la explosión, me asomé a la ventana y pude ver uno de los aviones saliendo. Le dije a la señora mía, parece que se equivocó la artillería antiaérea nuestra y le tiró un avión nuestro. Cuando procedí a acostarme nuevamente, eh, las explosiones volvieron y el fuego antiaéreo más nutrido. Me di cuenta que era un bombardeo. Son bombardeados los aeropuertos de Santiago de Cuba, Ciudad Libertad y San Antonio de los Baños. socialista en las propias narices de los Estados Unidos y que esa revolución socialista la defendemos con esos fusiles aviones de combate, 5 tanques de guerra Sherman, 10 carros blindados, 
21 cañones sin retroceso. Su poder de fuego es muy superior al que jamás tuvo el ejército rebelde en la sierra o ningún movimiento guerrillero en la historia de América Latina o del mundo. 176 muertos y más de 300 heridos entre soldados, milicianos y civiles es el saldo de la invasión. Tras la sorpresa inicial, las fuerzas cubanas despliegan su contraofensiva. derribados vienen disfrazados con las siglas del ejército cubano.
es un honor para mí el estar hoy entre un grupo de los hombres más valientes del mundo. Los hombres más valientes del mundo. Los valientes de Jacqueline. El gobierno norteamericano acepta recogerlos a cambio de pagar a Cuba una indemnización de 62 millones de dólares. Los prisioneros son canjeados por medicinas y alimentos. Mercenarios por compotas, como se conoció popularmente la negociación. agresiones militares ejecutadas desde Estados Unidos contra un pequeño país latinoamericano, soberano e independiente. más necesitada en la clase campesina era analfabeta completa en nuestro país. Por tanto, marchamos en el primer contingente donde íbamos alrededor de 1.500 jóvenes. llegar al lugar destinado que era la Sierra Maestra, allí primeramente se nos fue ubicando en distintos campamentos. en hoja de los árboles escribían cuando no llegaban las libreras. El contenido de la clase era aritmética, español, cívica, le damos diferentes asignaturas, igual que aparte de eso, de darle la clase a los niños por la mañana, los mayocitos, la tarde. Damos clase y por la noche, los adultos. Nosotros no solamente dábamos clase, nosotros 
inscribimos a los niños que nacieron allí, que nunca se habían registrado civilmente, casamos a los matrimonios. Y una de las cosas fundamentales es que muchos niños morían parasitados, desnutridos. Lo primero que empezamos a hacer fue un trabajo educacional, en mostrarles, enseñarles a los campesinos la necesidad de por qué tenían que usar zapatos. Nos enseñaron a inyectar, vacunamos a los campesinos. Allí nosotros nos vimos hasta en la necesidad de hacer un parto a veces. Los pelotones que trabajan por la mañana, por la tarde estudian, y al revés. Un apretado programa de 13 asignaturas, a vencer en cuatro meses, consume una porción considerable del tiempo. Una educación arraigada en la realidad, en la vida y para la vida. Dentro de nosotros hubo una figura que fue el mártir que presidió toda esta campaña de alfabetización, el símbolo de la campaña de alfabetización. Mi compañera tuvo el honor de ser compañera de campamento de Conrado, de Conrado Benítez. Conrado Benítez era, siempre decimos un muchacho, porque él tenía 19 años y era muy jovencito. Muy serio, muy respetuoso. Le gustaban las tareas de, de compartir con todos los demás. Él estaba ubicado en una escuelita en el Escambray. Ese día da la casualidad que me habían invitado a almorzar a casa de un campesino que tenía un radiecito de pila. Entonces estoy yo, la hora del noticiero, y en eso la noticia... Y yo recuerdo que yo dije, Conrado Benítez, no puede ser, no puede ser. Ese es el compañero nuestro, es mi compañero, mi compañero. Me tuve que sentar a meditar aquel crimen horrendo que pensaron que con eso iban a, a tratar de, de, que, de que la campaña no, no, no se hiciera. Aquella graduación terminó con llanto porque... Era un compañero nuestro. La gran batalla final. Adiós, analfabetismo. Mal de todos los pueblos. Cuba ha vencido ya. tried to capture there in the second film and I was wondering should we have seen them the other way around because one is like what you know one is the Bay of Pigs and the first one is on the Bay of Pigs invasion obviously told from a Cuban perspective that we don't have a lot of opportunity to hear and the second is about a core piece of what they were doing when they were in the early years of the revolution and why the ruling class backed by the U.S. was trying to overthrow them right so because one of these pillars 
of the revolutionary platform was to bring education to all. They made in 1960, April of 1960. So this is also their anniversary month. It was a very important month for those teachers, those first volunteer teachers. Um, they made an open call. It was April 22nd, 1960. They made an open call for volunteer teachers that were supposed to be much more than teachers, right? Like young people, many of them were involved in like the Association of Revolutionary Youth, the AJR, that was really important. Some of them had come from left families or just been involved in the revolution um, in other ways, but they were a little bit younger than, like a few years younger than people who'd actually fought in the Sierra or fought in the urban underground. So once the revolutionary came to power, they made an open call for these teachers. 1,500 young people went on the first wave. They went into rural communities all across the country and started to take a literacy census, build the first school. Some of these communities had no schools um, for you know miles and miles and they're really rocky terrain. Um, so they started to take a literacy census, build the first schools and do also like public health kind of work, give, in, give um, vaccinations, deliver babies, Etc. And they really laid the groundwork for what became the massive national campaign for full literacy the following year, in which a quarter million people worked as volunteer teachers with the goal of teaching a million people how to read and write. There are about six million Cubans on the island at the time that the revolution took power, and um, about one million of them could not read and write. And some of these people had never, ever been to school, didn't know how to write their alphabet, didn't know how to write their names. And so one of the first, you know, huge leap on that path, because at the same time, they were, again, like nationalizing foreign, you know, US owned companies, carrying out a land reform, redistributing land, redistributing urban housing. Um, but on in terms of the education track, this was a, a piece of the platform. This was their first huge leap toward a long term a commitment to building education for all and building a national education system. So their goal in 1961 was to bring everyone up to a first grade reading level. And the stories, so um, I worked with a team and we collected stories from some of the youngest teachers. We spent 10 years collecting stories. And the teachers tell, you know, the, the stories they tell are incredible. Like they're, you know, just beautiful personal stories about teaching folks how to read and write, how to write their names, how to write the alphabet. They also tell stories that were really ex, um, indicative of the level of systematic exclusion. Like, you know, stories of there was one woman taught a family that they didn't know they lived on an island. Yeah, that's pretty intense. They were like way up in the mountains. And she said they didn't know that they didn't lived on an island. They had never been to the coast, never been to the beach. It's almost hard to imagine that, right? Um, or one of the young teachers we interviewed who was 14 at the time said that he was teaching a family, you know, how to like write their names, write the alphabet. And somehow it came up this discussion about the world being round. And like, they'd never heard, heard the concept of the world being round, you know? And he's like, how do you, when you're 14, like, how do you try to explain, you know, well, the, how could the world be round? People on the bottom don't fall off. And, you know, just like, but this was what happened. I think one of the most important things in the, in the literacy campaign that's indicative of sort of the, for me, part of why it's so important is it kind of, kind of goes right to the heart of everything that the revolution was trying to build. But this, you know, it gets, com it's completely out of this sort of charity model that so much happens in the US. It's whereas it's like this much more 
liberate a liberation process where folks who've had access to education and those who haven't come together like as comrades to overcome a collective problem to work together to overcome a collective problem which is a national problem of mass illiteracy or systematic exclusion from education so one of these young teachers was killed. One of the maestros voluntarios was killed, Conrado Benitez, in January of 1961, that we showed a fragment in that second clip. Um, and so the youth brigades of the following year were named after him. They became the Conrado Benitez Youth Brigades. And the leadership of the revolution said, right, they were in those sort of in the stepped up aggressions leading up to the Bay of Pigs. It was just three months before the Bay of Pigs invasion happened. And there were other military aggressions and sabotage attacks happening, you know, at the time, coming from the US mostly and the Cuban ruling elite that was then in, in largely in South Florida. Um, but the murder of Conrado Benitez, you know, the response of the revolutionary leadership was, well, they're trying to stop the revolution. They're trying to stop the literacy campaign in particular, which was such a huge, important, like very palpable um, way that people were making the revolution happen right and so they're trying to stop literacy campaign but rather than stopping it through intimidation like a hundred thousand young teachers will spring forth where one was killed and that's exactly what happened so just i guess my last words before we open it up is just like the mag the magnitude of the importance for the rest of us um of the literacy campaign itself you know of the cuban revolution and it's many, many um, concrete acts, including the literacy campaign. It's just there are infinite lessons for the rest of us um, around the world today about you know what is possible. So I'd love to hear your thoughts, reflections. <laughs> Questions, of course, I don't know if I can answer them all, but I think just to, you know, open it up free school style. Thank you again for having me, letting me share this, these reflections of my own. Yeah, these are uh, really uh, important video clips. And um, uh, for us, we've often turned to uh, Fidel Castro's speech on the literacy campaign. Uh, in fact, when we did the year of Du Bois and we kind of had reading groups across the city, we tried to model it as a mini literacy campaign. We had read his speech, which made a lot of the points, which Catherine was saying that it's about not just teaching other people, but learning yourself and this kind of uh, combined transformation and growth that happens. So for a while, a long time, I think it's been important for us. But today, at least for me, I learned, I appreciated the significance of it even more um, because of the history in this video clip, learning about um, Conrado Benitez uh, and basically the fact it seems that the US saw the literacy campaign as such a threat um, because I think that in every society that is being dominated or exploited by others, basically you have to keep the population ignorant um, it also reminds me of what we learned in Du Bois from reading Du Bois's Russia and America, where he said that if uh, Russia, the Soviet Union is such an authoritarian country, why would an authoritarian country spend so much money and energy uh, educating people 
an authoritarian country do the opposite. It would keep people ignorant, which is basically often what we see in the United States as well. Um, so yeah, it's just, this just for me, uh, reiterated and emphasized the significance of literacy. It is true literacy also um, as part of the revolution and how, how central that was. Yeah, I thought the clips were really moving. And I just wanted to thank you again for sharing them on free school and also the translations, because even for my two seconds of even, even trying to translate some Chinese works, it's an extremely difficult thing and to do justice to the original language. And there's just so much material out in the world that talking about the Cuban revolution or just sharing so much history worldwide that's hidden from us in the US. So to be able to have translations, um, like translating material like that's really important. Um, but I also love the two clips because it really shows, like it really shows something we've talked about the free school where there are two sides. It's not necessarily US versus Cuba, but it's humanity versus imperialism or humanity versus war. And you have on one hand, the commitment of these young people to go and teach, to reduce illiteracy, to want to solve, you know, they're not just teachers, like they talked about, we would give, like we would help women give birth. We would like, you know, this just the sacrifice of these young people on the literacy brigade, brigades versus, and on the other hand, you have the complete cowardice of the imperialists coming and wanting to destroy that. Um, and in some ways it reminds me of how, like, especially with the civil rights movement in the US, there was this theory for the theory of nonviolence. It was this idea that you will show, like you exemplify morality, like you show the moral truth through your actions as part of the movement. And you get the same sense of that in Cuba where it's whose side are you gonna be on, the warmongers or the literacy campaign? It's just so obvious. Um, and those are the two sides, humanity versus imperialism, humanity versus war, and whose side do you really wanna be on? Um, and I think another thing it also showed was, there's this speech by Fidel, and I forget, which one, but it comes across in whenever he speaks, where he says, he says, the US may have all these technological weapons. They may have so much money that they can dedicate to war, but what Cuba has, which is above all and is everlasting is we have the human weapon, the weapon of humanity, um, the weapon of morality. And for as long as we have that, we cannot be defeated. And you really get that in these two clips. Um, and I think that's a legacy of the Cuban revolution as well, but also Fidel as a great leader. Um, yeah, and just that thing of the weapon of humanity. Um, yeah, so just thank you again. Um, I just, I guess the last thing is also Fidel always emphasized, he always talked about how the youth, like the youth are the greatest treasure, treasure of Cuba. Um, and especially with the Literacy Brigade, it's both the youth who are going to teach, but it's also the children who are saved, you know, the children who are taught to read and like the children who are taught the importance of wearing shoes and who are vaccinated. Um, and just this thing of, this is another thing we talked about with Russia and America that 
the goal of the Soviet Union or Cuba or all these world revolutions, it comes down to who do you want to be the most privileged person in society? The child, you want it to be the child. Um, and I think that's the greatest devastation of the US too, is just what has happened to the child in our society. Uh, uh, bringing in some comments, a number of people say, send their greetings to Catherine. Thank you for joining us today. Um, Stephen Palmier says uh, on the earlier history, I think, which you were describing, that the parallels with the history of Hawaii are very, also very interesting. Um, Yvonne King writes, uh, the inevitable battle from the Bay of Pigs to Playa Hiron is a book by Juan Carlos Rodriguez, who at the time of the Bay of Pigs was a young literacy teacher where the battle was fought, published in 2009. Jake Harris says, both of these films were wonderful. Uh, Catherine writes, Children of the Revolution by Jonathan Kozel, who went on to become a renowned critic of the US education system. And also says, each one teach one. Cuban literacy campaign was a model for the Granada education system. Unfortunately, the US invaded Granada and murdered its revolutionary leaders. Uh, Yvonne also writes, Catherine, could you talk a bit about what the literacy campaign teachers learned from their students? Thank you for that question. That's a beautiful, powerful question. Also want to celebrate all those books that um, the book by Juan Carlos Rodriguez, I think it's published by Pathfinder Press. And he gave us he gave a talk earlier this week, I'll see if I can find it and send you all in the coming days a link, because he just sent a video from Cuba this week for the for the Bay of Pigs anniversary that was subtitled into English. I think the National Network on Cuba may have released it. I'll, I'll try to get that link for you all. That's his, his uh, spoken testimony. But then, and I, but I think you can get his book um, that, uh, from Pathfinder Press. Um, so all of the, all, so we interviewed about 80 teachers from the literacy campaign. We set out to sort of interview the youngest teachers um, and then you know, and then just like interviewed everyone <laughs> that came across our path and counting because we're still collecting interviews. Um, we haven't stopped doing interviews. They're like more sporadic now, but, um, but they all say, we ask them all, what did you learn from, their, from your students? And they all say that they learned more than they ever could have taught. And they say things like, uh, yeah, one of the teachers said, yeah, I taught them the alphabet and they taught me how to be a person. Or they say things like, uh, one of the other people I interviewed, Deanna Balboa, she says, yeah, they taught me, what did I learn? She goes, what did I learn from them? I learned how to like be a person. I learned how to look people in the eye. I looked how, learned how to, um, that how important is your word? You know, like when you give your word, your word, like if you're in a rural community, just the, this like huge, like, all right, people haven't had formal schooling or access to schooling, but like the knowledge, the wisdom, the brilliance um, is not measured by formal schooling, right? Preventing people from accessing schools, like you're saying, it's like a tool of exploitation and oppression but it's not any, it's in no way correlated with, you know, knowledge or 
wisdom, intelligence is something like beyond, but they all talk about how much they learn from their they, students. They all said they learn more than they taught. Um, I also think it's significant to say that so many of those young people, so there were a quarter million volunteer teachers on the literacy campaign. 100,000 of them were under 18, you know, mostly between the ages of 14 and 17, some even younger. A huge number of those young people, like they fell in love with teaching. They fell in love with this, you know, with teaching as an act of liberation or an act of love. And again, like on this horizontal comradeship, you know, way that they did it, right? So many, many, many of them went on to be teachers and have spent their life teaching in one way or another, either as classroom teachers or different kinds of educators. And then a crew of those people, a subgroup um, of them devoted their lives to adult literacy education, like thinking and planning and thinking about it. And one of those, uh, one of those people is a Cuban woman named Leonella Rellis. She actually passed away a few years ago. She was 14 in 1961 and she dedicated her entire life to adult literacy work and was part of the core team that developed this Cuban adult literacy methodology that's been used in like 30 countries around the world in multiple languages. It's been used in a lot of indigenous languages around the Americas. It's also used um, in Maori, in New Zealand, Maori communities, and uh, in East Timor, in Aboriginal communities in Australia, First Nations communities in Canada. So they developed this whole, like this whole long-term um, methodology for teaching adult literacy grew out of this initial campaign. And Cuba still, you know, runs, or it's like, not, I, not that they run it, but they provided this methodology that people use in communities and countries all around the globe. So like Venezuela under Hugo Chavez and the Bolivarian revolution, one of the first things that they did was set out to do a literacy campaign. They used the Cuban methodology from this, they call it yo si puedo, which means yes, I can, right? Yo si puedo. So if you've studied about the Bolivarian revolution in Venezuela, they had a massive um, adult literacy, they, they had a, a massive adult literacy campaign they called Mission Robinson. Mission Robinson, they had all these missions, these social missions to just bypass like the bourgeois state institutions, right? So they just went like straight to the grassroots, straight to people and they did what they called missions. They did literacy, GED, uh, health clinics that were just community clinics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the literacy campaign called Mission Robinson was found, is the methodology is what's brought from Cuba or like the MST, the Landless Workers Movement in Brazil uses the Cuban literacy methodology from Yossi Puedo for their literacy campaign. And it's a huge piece of their work because they're like, okay, we're organizing landless farmers to do land takeovers. And one of the things that they found was that, you know, most of the people they're working with had never had the opportunity to go to school. So they didn't know how to read and write, which is, you know, also part of the way that people have been cheated, rural people have been cheated out of their land for ever. <laughs> um, so they started this literacy work, which is also political education work. That's part of organizing their organizing model for doing land takeovers in Brazil. 
So the magnitude of the influence of what you know rippled out from this initial campaign is uh, in Cuba is really huge. You know, in the way that Cuba, same as they've done with their medical brigades, like they've put this education methodology at the service of the world and of humanity. Yeah, let me, let me just chime in really quickly. I first want to thank Catherine for your intellect, for your perspective, for your knowledge and bringing that with us. Um, this is this is huge. Um, you know, looking back at this particular point in history, you have this monopoly duopoly system, Democrats, Republicans, liberal conservatives. At the time, they were all in complete agreement to overthrow any revolutionary governments whenever possible, whether that be communist, perceived to be socialist, whether that perceived to be anti-United, you know, whatever the case might have been. So then you have Castro, you know, who, if I remember correctly, Batista was, he was uh, backed by America at that time. Was, am, I, am I correct in remembering that? Absolutely. So you have a full Gencio Batista being backed by America, being overthrown by Castro. And the whole reason is the revolution was a direct threat to American business interests. You know, and this is very interesting because when you, when you look back at this point in history, American companies are controlling anywhere from 80 to 100% of Cuban utilities. So they were controlling the mines, ranches, the, all the oil refineries in Cuba. Uh, you know, I, I don't remember the percentage, but a certain percentage of the sugar industry, uh, and even the railways in Cuba were all being controlled with American companies. And so this is fascinating, you know, oh, you're gonna upset American business interest? That cannot happen. And then you had Castro, who was just amazing enough himself because Castro, he first has an unsuccessful attack in 1953. I think it was um, the, the barracks, the barracks of- Moncada, Moncada right? barracks. Yeah, in the barracks. So he comes out of prison, he goes down, he, he, he was in Mexico at the time. He, he links up with Che Guevara. He returns in 56 to Cuba. And, that, and then that guerrilla sort of warfare from the jungles, from mountains. And so, I mean, the lesson is quite remarkable. And Castro's story is amazing to think about the ways in which he was really insane with courage to overthrow who the real dictatorship was, you see? And so uh, they became more and more popular. And I think Emily hit this on, on, on the head when she's talking about you know, when, when Castro is in power, he's interested in setting up that nationwide system of education. Uh, like you said, Catherine, of housing, of land distribution, which you said so beautifully. There were landless peasants. And so, you know, he confiscates millions of acres of land from, from American companies. Now, America's not going to take that lightly, of course. Uh, but I think it's so fascinating to look back at this story and just to see the ways in which, uh, you know, the small, 90 miles off the coast in America. Let me, I gotta ask Doc one question. At this time, I remember Cuba needed money to finance its programs, but I also remember America was not very eager to lend Cuba money. And that comes back to the International Monetary Fund. And that fund itself was, was set up after World War II, along with the United Nations, uh, you know, which was dominated by the United States. Is that, is that am I, is my memory correct in remembering that? You, you, you're right, and the World Bank. And the World Bank, that's right, that's right, that's right. Because the United States was not going to loan money to Cuba because they would not, because Cuba wouldn't accept the, the stabilization conditions, if you remember correctly, right? So this is a fascinating, a fascinating story. Um, it's a fascinating lesson because I think, you know, this is, 
the education, we talk about education and, and the problems of education today. I mean, we're in great crisis. In our society, the lesson that Cuba is teaching us here is the fact that there's this dialectical relation between a student being a teacher and a teacher being a student. In America, it's the very opposite. It is everything is top down. The, the teacher is superior. The student knows nothing. The teacher just lectures down to the students. And this, it, this superior inferior relationship is constantly being enhanced in all forms of education, K through 12, and then you know go to college degree. And so it, it's very Gramsci-like in the sense uh, of, of the dialectical relation that Cuba was operating under. And your word is your bond. Your word is your bond. You know, we say that in Philadelphia all the time. You know, that is, that is like law for brothers and sisters in Philadelphia. You know, your word is your bond. Don't break your word, you know. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so, and the last thing I, I want to say, and I'll, I'll stop talking for a moment because I have some more, but I just want to turn it back over. And Catherine, you said the teacher uh, looked at themselves as an act of liberation and love. I mean, how beautiful is that? That, that, that in American society, oh, we perceive the business CEO as being this ideal sense of what we should be striving to achieve, you know, in America. A very, you know, very hedonistic, narcissistic, individualistic values of, a, of an imperialist culture. But in Cuba, it's the very opposite. The foundation is education. The, the, the greatest thing you could become was a teacher. You know, and I mean, the beauty of just listening to that come out of your way, it, it comes back to the point that we were making about a week or two ago. And when King was talking about a revolution of values, and this is what Cuba was undergoing was a revolution of values. What do we centralize as being, or, or one, defining beauty? I think Michelle Liu always talks about the concept of beauty, but here it is being conceptualized and beauty is as beauty does. It's the act of beauty. It's the act of love. It's the sacrifice, the willingness to position yourself to a commitment to others. And I think, you know, in this lesson for me, I'm learning an awful lot today and I'm loving it because it's reminding me a lot of this history that I've forgotten. Uh, but none, nonetheless, the revolution of values, you know, what do you value? What do you centralize within your culture, within your economy? And what type of liberation practices will you undergo in your society? And so it's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, as we're having this discussion, I'm also really thinking about, you know, again, education as a tool of revolution, of the revolutionary process. As we've been discussing in the United States, it's, it's usually either this philanthropic model of education or this very, and related to that, this very top-down model of education. Um, but I'm really starting appreciating the fact that uh, as Catherine was saying, this adult literacy model, this overall literacy model, how that was a great contribution to the political struggle uh, from the Cuban revolution. Because often we also sometimes, uh, you know, don't fully appreciate the role of education as part of social movements, as part of the struggle for revolution. Often there's a fetishization of just protests or armed struggle, but here there, they're saying like, okay, we implemented this model in our country. Now these other 30 countries and different social movements in these 30 countries. And I love the examples which you gave where you talked about in Venezuela and Brazil. It's such a great contribution to them that they can actually use this. And it's such, it, it allows them to take such a great leap forward. So it's just another, you know, appreciating this great contribution to the world. One of the many contributions uh, to humanity from the uh, Cuban revolution. And, uh, 
some more comments. Uh, Michelle Liu writes, uh, thank you for a beautiful and very informative presentation, Catherine. So glad you could join us for free school. I was struck by how you described the Cuban revolution as psychologically freeing the Cuban and Latin American people to know what could be struggled for and achieved. The example of Cuba makes me think of the human possibilities with China's rise today, which will hopefully release the potential of a, of a world intelligently planned toward the uplift of the people. And uh, Meghna writes, Catherine's observation that the Cuban revolution has been going on since the struggle for independence from Spain is so deep and reminds me of what Yvonne always says that revolution is a process. It also gives me hope about how all the struggles for national liberation, including the Indian freedom struggle are ongoing processes. It also helps us understand China today. I actually had a question for Catherine about, cause you went to Cuba in the nineties and I was curious, like how is, how are things like the literacy campaign remembered and carried on today? Like I know you mentioned the adult literacy campaign, but because a big part of like, for example, the hundredth anniversary of the Chinese communist party is like a big emphasis on teaching, remi reminding everyone, but also especially teaching younger generations of the sacrifice. Um, like revolutionaries made and how it has to be continued forward. And I guess I was wondering how things like the literacy campaign are remembered today. Um, and I guess, how is that history carried on and like taught to the young? Yeah, it's a wonderful question. They do a lot in Cuba. I mean, I think there's a, a, a big focus on history in terms of education in general, which is not only through schools, but through the media, like through the through television. They, and I think this whole question of seeing, you know, history as a continuum, like, you know, past, present, and future are, can, are a continuum, you know, uh, the past is not like something way out there that happened, but really bringing it into the now and seeing, seeing your life now and your struggles now as part of that continuum and that it's going somewhere and you're moving into the future and, you, you know, know where you're going or where you want to be going. So they do a lot of education around that in all ways. But one of the things when you're um, just talking, I was thinking about, they do on national television um, uh, every day, they do a thing like this day in history. And they talk about, and so it's like an educational, you know, because all their television is national. They have, I don't know exactly how many channels they have. Uh, when I was there in the 90s, they had like two channels, maybe, <laughs> I don't know. Now they have like five. <laughs> five is probably too many. <laughs> but you know, it's not like here's like infinite garbage, you know, or infinite to toxic, toxic messages. Um, so they have like an education, a culture, arts and culture channel, education channel, and a news channel. And um, But they have this day in history every day. And so they talk about you know, and it goes back to both the struggle for independence, but also the struggles that happened in the 1930s. There was a huge union movement um, and a land a push for land reform. People that were that were especially sugar workers uh, unions that were really strong and that were pushing for land reform, um, and and also the revolution, the revolutionary struggle. So they do a lot of that in you know looking at the whole long arc of history and the Cuban revolution ongoing, you know, the process of the Cuban revolution in that long history. In terms of literacy campaign, so people know about it. Um, and 
what, one of the things I think is really interesting, and they keep it alive. There's a museum that's dedicated to the history of the Cuban of the literacy campaign that they have like students there, and also you know solidarity brigades go there as well. Um, but the last year, I've also been working with these folks uh, in Havana in a neighborhood called Central Havana that are a community a grassroots education project or popular education project that grew out of the Cuban hip hop movement that was really big in the 90s. There's a, um, a group called Obsesión that was one of the, you know, Cuban hip hop culture had a big peak in the 90s. And one of the groups that was founded then, they're sort of one of the forerunners of the Cuban hip hop movement are called Obsesión and they still um, perform. And they have really seen like you using, they've been really intentional and conscientious about using the hip hop, hip hop platform or using their platform as artists and using hip hop as a vehicle for doing um, popular education and political education consciousness raising around with, with all kinds of messages, right? Around Cuban history, revolutionary history, black history and positive messaging about just, you know, what we can be in the world. And so they are doing, I've been working together with them and they are running as like an free after school program in their neighborhood that's modeled after the Cuban literacy campaign. So, um, and they are working now, we're working together, the collective has, has grown and we're doing, um, trying to do one interview a month of people in their neighborhood. So they're bringing the younger people in to, you know, they were in their twenties and the nineties and they're like, whatever the math, but you know, they're working on bringing younger people in like, you know, folks in their like teens and twenties to actually record the interviews, the oral histories of the elders that were involved in the literacy campaign. So it's like being a part of history, seeing that history, recording that history yourself and also saying, they're saying like this, you know, 40 year old hip hop folks are saying to the, people younger than them like we're all looking at our elders as our, our collective encyclopedias right and we not only have a duty to record their stories but also to carry on their legacy so like they're saying you know trying to help the younger folks engage in some way that they're identifying as being you know carrying on of the tradition of the literacy campaign you know, what, one other thing I wanted to add was the Bay of Pigs, this whole bag, the Bay of Pigs affair to me just really uh, highlights American hypocrisy and, and lies and deception. You know, if, if I remember correctly, America had previously signed the Charter of Organization of American States, which this became a, a complete violation of Truman's rule of law back then, which had directly stated that you weren't supposed to be able to intervene either directly or indirectly for whatever reason, uh, in internal or external affairs in any other state. So, you know, this whole, this American deception, American lies, uh, you know, the way is, I, I even remember, you know, there was some, there were some reports that came out prior to the invasion. And I remember President Kennedy was holding a press conference and he had lied right outright to the public and said that they weren't going to intervene in Cuba. Uh, they weren't going to send forces into Cuba. And, and of course, exactly what he lied to the public about happens a couple of days later. And so this American hypocrisy, American deception, the ways in which the news and the media is in, in cohorts with the empire, you know, really positioning their arguments 
in their, on their behalf. And so this deception and these lies and this hypocrisy, really Americans' national interests and economic interests, once that's in, in, in play, nothing else matters to America. They break any rules if it's in their interest and they'll justify it any way humanly possible. And they'll try, to, they'll try to use all kinds of negative misconceptions about the locations which they're trying to conquer to, to the public to get public support. And in reality, uh, it is just lies after lies, deception after deception, and manipulation. And I think that's the biggest point, because in time looking at education, education becomes a form of manipulation. So you, you, social orders don't operate unless you control the populace. So the, the, the greatest threat to a social order is critical thinkers, which is so funny because Cuba is saying we want to create nothing but critical thinkers in relation to the purpose of life and what it means, as, as Emily said, the best of what it means to be human. And so, you know, it's the very opposite of what, you know, America is the very opposite of democracy in this context, of course. Uh, but I really can't get over the deception and the lies uh, concerning how America had operated in this Bay of Pigs operation because it, it is so outright disrespectful uh, and, and just disingenuous that it's, a, it's, you know, it really sets off the alarm. But it's, this also goes back to World War II and, and this whole lie, for example, oh, we're going to fight a, a people's war. Not, oh, you're gonna stop imperialism, racism, totalitarianism. Like you aren't the man, <laughs> you aren't the one perpetuating that amongst the world. Oh, but now you've re, you repositioned the, the people's war. It's a people's war. Well, hold on a second, dog. You mean exactly what you're saying you, you ending is exactly what you became the master architect of. You know, so it's the contradictions and, and, and the manipulation, deception, the lies, you know, and I, I think this, this is a valuable lesson, the Bay of Pigs. It's just remarkable to see the ways in which it went down uh, and the literacy campaign and, and the importance it has both on the teacher and student, but as a central mechanism for how you want to build your society, going back to Du Bois's Russia and America as well. What they were able to achieve in ten years took Western civilization three hundred fifty years. Concerning literacy, <laughs> Brandon, I, I I really think what you're saying about manipulation is so important, and also the fact that we looked at these two films together about the literacy campaign and Bay of Pigs, you know, that are happening at the same time, and sort of, you know, I I think if I remember correctly, you know, the the, the the U.S. thought that there would be defectors from the Cuban forces that would sort of join the Bay of Pigs invasion because everybody was being oppressed by Castro, yada, yada, yada. And then that didn't happen. And I, you know, I think that the literacy campaign must be a huge reason also why that didn't happen, that a form of education where people could actually see manipulation when it was coming. And like you said, they had, uh, Catherine, they had their kitchen knives out and everything and were already ready when that was happening. But, you know, it, it's really remarkable just how they were able to coalesce around this revolution of value so quickly, you know, just two years after um, taking power and to, to combat and um, defeat the U.S. in that way. I think just just speaks volumes to how much education uh, in this way uh, can actually make a difference. And I, I think like Jahan was saying, you know, we often do romanticize protest or armed struggle, but the fact that there was, you know, education as the grounds of that kind of self-defense of the revolution, 
I think is, is really important for our generation of Americans also to learn from. Yeah, like that song, I forget which video, I think it may be, yeah, I forget which video ended with that song where the motto was like, I forget, like pencil, pencil rifle something and just, you know, like education as a weapon and the way you just put that, Vincent, Vincent like that, I mean, education, the literacy campaign was a just as important form of self-defense as armed struggle. Um, like I really love that part of the video, like that you ended with the, like the the song and the chant about like the different forms of self defense and the pencil and paper and all of that was in there with the rifle. And Vincent, that's a really important point that I actually had forgotten about, because you know the CIA had these exiles from Cuba, and so you know it's always oh well the exiles so they must but they must dismantle what's happened to Cuba, we got exiles on our side, but they, they had hinged their whole strategy, like you said, on that the general uprising against Castro, which never came to fruition because Castro it was a very popular regime at that time, you see? So they had hinged on this fact that, oh, this general uprising is all we need. The people are on our side and the people said, no, we not on your side, you know? There was no uprising. And then within a few days, they're crushed by Castro's army, which I think is, is a great, is a great, I forgot about that actually. That was a big part of their strategy was trying to get you know, the general uprising against Castro from the people who were having no parts of it. Uh, bringing in some more comments. Uh, uh, Purba Chatterjee writes, with the recent change in leadership, the legacy of the Cuban revolution is being put to the test. There seems to be uh, increasing pressure on Diaz-Canal, Diaz who's uh, the new president of Cuba, and I think also now the general secretary of the Communist Party. Diaz-Canal to expand the private sector and introduce market-style reforms, especially from college-educated and increasingly West-facing youth. Diaz-Canal is being praised for tweeting regularly and advocating for broader internet access. It would be a shame, given what we saw in the videos, if after all of this, the essence of the Cuban revolution and its steadfast opposition to the forces of imperialism cannot be preserved. I wanted to ask you what you think uh, could be the ramifications of these developments. And when I say college educated youth, it is ironic given how much importance was given to literacy and how much was sacrificed in order to ensure that people have access to education. This is a really, really important question. And it's, I had actually wrote in my notes just now, or like a few minutes ago in the conversation, I mean, this is exactly about just to be sure to talk about how, um, like to not leave today without saying, highlighting that obviously the, the war on Cuba still continues. You know, the US failed at the Bay of Pigs, Cuba, Cuba overthrew the, U.S. backed mercenary invasion, the imperialist invasion at the Bay of Pigs in 72 hours, but the war on Cuba never stopped. The war on Cuba has been constant and consistent ever since. It's been covert, overt, economic, political, military, you know, the but economic, the economic war has been a really big part of it. And now so much of it is also into this like ideological, you know, a culture war. So, and it's in a, it, this is a very intense moment in all of that right now, right? Um, 
Barack Obama start re started to reestablish uh, diplomatic relations with Cuba for the first time since the revolution happened, like very soon after the revolution, right after the Bay of Pigs failed. Can't remember all the exact date relations. Some of you may know it better than me, but like we started a massive trade embargo. The, the embargo, the first pieces of the embargo, I think, followed the nationalization. So it was before Bay of Pigs, right? They, we did, the U.S. didn't buy the sugar quota. The U.S. was the main purchaser of Cuban sugar. Like there was a sugar quota. There was a, the U.S. canceled the sugar quota when the revolution happened. You know, started all this like overt and covert. So there's there covert military uh, attacks, including the Bay of Pigs invasion. And then there was all of this covert uh, work, uh, sorry, overt mil, uh, economic war, right? So an ideological war, which is part, so much of what we're all, you all are talking about around like manipulations, lies, you know, to the US public and the, and the world. So the trade embargo slash blockade, as Cuba calls it, exists up to this day. It's called a blockade. So, I mean, they, Cuban calls it the blockade. They're like, it's a far beyond an embargo because it's multi-territorial. It's not just that we won't sell to you. It's that the US pressures other countries and companies all around the world. Um, to not trade with Cuba. So right uh, in like the in the early 90s in the special period when Cuba was having such a hard time having lost their primary trading partner with the socialist, you know, Soviet Union and the socialist trading bloc, um, Cuba was starting to try to make all this new trade. The US actually went after the other companies around the world that were trading with Cuba to try to pressure them to stop. And almost all of that trade was in food and medicine. So, you know, just cruel, evil. What did Emily say? It's like empire versus humanity, like so, so anti-humanity. And that this war has continued up to this day. So right now, so 45, so, so Obama uh, reestablished, we've had these, Carter opened what they called special interest sections. It's the lowest level of diplomatic relations that two countries can have. Before Carter, there was nothing since the Bay of Pigs, right? Nothing. So then um, Carter opened these special interest sections, which were located in the Swiss embassies formally, US and Cuba and Cuba and the US. Obama started to reestablish, there were some behind the scenes talks and Obama announced here and the same exact moment that Raul Castro was announcing on Cuban radio and television. I was in Havana at the time, I heard it live. I fell off my chair that the, that diplomatic, that, that they had spoken on the phone, it was probably the first time since the Cuban revolution that two heads of state between the US and Cuba had spoken directly to each other, spoken on the phone. So they spoke on the phone and they agreed to start to make steps to reestablish diplomatic relations and to live together as neighbors. So the intersections were tended to turn into embassies on both sides and regular uh, commercial airline flights started to happen, meaning you could get online, you could book a flight to Cuba on American Airlines, JetBlue, Southwest, Delta, and a couple others. This had never been possible before. You had to do like a stack of paperwork, get on charters. It was run through treasury. They would harass people getting on and off the flights to Cuba in Miami. Um, so that started to change. I was very critical of all of that. Um, I'm critical of tourism in general, the tourist industry. I think it's a colonialist. <laughs> it's hard to 
pull tourism out of a history of colonialism and imperialism. So I was really critical of all that. Well, but, and, you know, now, so Trump just tried to shut all that down using lies and manipulations and excuses. So they said there were these sonic attacks, uh, which is something really, really worth um, researching. And have any of you all seen the belly, been watching this Belly of the Beast series? I want to highly recommend. There is a media crew now, Belly of the Beast, I'm gonna drop it in here. And they um, have been doing a series of short videos reporting from Cuba about the US war on Cuba. And they had a, a series, I think they had a trilogy of shorts to launch um, a few months ago. And they're about to do it, launch, start their new trilogy. And the first one's gonna be examining these sonic attacks, sonic attacks. Well, yes, a lot of the US embassy staff started having like hearing problems. I don't know exactly what percentage of US embassy staff around the world actually are you know, work for the CIA are like intelligence people, but it's a very high number. So, you know, I always sort of had this picture in my mind of like their own, you know, equipment backfiring or something. But anyway, there was a lot of media manipulation about that. It was called in the press, the way the press colludes, sonic attacks. What do you mean sonic attacks? Like there was no, Cuba said, let's collaborate. Let's do a research. What's happened? Who are the people? What are the symptoms? What were they doing when those symptoms happened? Like, you know, and the US refused to collaborate with Cuba. But under Trump, the embassies were closed using partly that as an excuse, partly the hurricanes as an excuse. They basically shut down the embassy. So Cubans on the island who want to come like visit their relatives now in the US, they can't. They have no way to request a visa. That may be starting to change right now a little bit. But they basically, what are the, what were the main bridges between our countries? Embassy, flights, and family remittances. And family remittances are so important right now because tourism, so I was saying, I was critical of the tourism, right? But now it's gone, it's evaporated. Like 95% reduction in tourism, I think they said since the beginning of the pandemic. And they're going under undergoing a monetary shift right now because they had three currencies in circulation. So they had, they've been studying planning for this for years and they were like taking the first steps when the pandemic hit and then tourism shut down. So they are, they're experiencing a level of economic contraction in which the most humanitarian thing that the US could do that could happen like this, I believe is to open for family remittances, Western Union. There were Western Union offices in Havana. I mean, a lot of countries in Latin America and the Caribbean and the developing world, they're number one, like in Central America, the number one income source for the families is family or for the nation or family remittances. So family remittances are key. And then that currency recirculates in the economy, whatever. So there's no way to get funds to your family in Cuba right now. There's no way. You can't send it by Western Union because that got shut down under Trump and you can't fly it in yourself because a lot of that money went in people's pockets. There's almost no flights right now. There's like one flight a week. Part of those limitations are Cuban limitations as a public health measure in the pandemic. But anyway, it's, it's, this, is the, this is the moment when we have to pressure to end the US blockade of Cuba. There's, there's I mean, it has to happen now. And, uh, yeah. So we got to push for it. We got to fight for it because Bi Biden certainly is not taking any steps in that direction. And Biden is, I mean, 
you know, you all are some truth tellers about Biden. I know that. And the Democrats, I know that. But, you know, Biden could have just taken, he could have re instantly reinstated some of the adjustments that Obama made that merit criticism, but they are kind of just, I mean, let's say just family remittances alone is a lifeline for the Cuban economy, which is trying to survive under a very cruel uh, US blockade. So, but yeah, they're not showing signs of doing any of that. So we have to fight for it. Uh, well, uh, as we're seeing, we're seeing the uh, Biden administration sanction many countries around the world. It's gonna take a lot of pressure to put that process into reverse. But also I'm thinking about, uh, you know, given the world situation and increasing economic cooperation among countries sanctioned by the United States and particularly the rise of China, the role of the Yuan being used more and the Russian currency and all that sort of stuff. I'm uh, just wondering how uh, the Cuban government will be responding to that situation. And I know they've had increased trade and cooperation with some of these emerging economies, particularly China, Russia, Iran, and of course, the link with Venezuela as well. But uh, this may present an opportunity to them as well. Yes, right. I think they're bringing the, a lot of medical, uh, China is a primary trade partner for Cuba, both in terms of food staples, but also medical supplies. I think they're, I heard they're bringing in all the syringes for the COVID vaccines. At the same time, like very, very, very scarce resources and that, you know, their priorities are so clear. Like they have put a lot of their brain power and, you know, that they've been educating people into developing a vaccine. Cuba is one of the global superpowers in medicine. There are more Cuban doctors practicing around the world than there are World Health Organization doctors. And they have five different vaccines that are in clinical trials right now. And the one that's probably going to get launched first is called Soberana, which means sovereign, sovereign, sovereignty. It's just such a beautiful name for a vaccine. And uh, a number of other countries around the world are all already asking Cuba uh, to share the patent or to, to try to produce it. Venezuela is interested in doing mass production of the Cuban vaccines. And Cuba is supposed to start, They I have several friends there that have participated in the clinical trials. They have volunteers participate, you know, and um, they are, I think, gonna start rolling out some of the first vaccines this week. Their goal is to have the entire island vaccinated by the end of the summer. But it also depends on things like syringes. The U.S. will not sell Cuba syringes. 90 miles away, it's cheap, it's fast, it's easy to bring. But they're but they do have a wonderful trade partner in China. So I think they're going to be bringing. And there's a campaign that just started launching here in the states this week that's going to be raising money to buy syringes from China for Cuba. And I think that's really important because they need you know supplies. So normally they'd be making the income on the on tourism and other you know the other like five six primary uh income you know in, in uh revenue generating sectors of the economy but tourism has been the number one since you know the special period complex problematic but it's the case of all the, the entire caribbean basin you know that the one of the main if not the main income sources, tourism. So they would earn that money on tourism and spend it immediately on food, medicine, et cetera, right? 
everything else that they need to run the country. So Fidel Castro said in the special period, he's like tourism, it's like chemotherapy. It might kill you, but it's your only way to survive, right? It can do you a lot of damage in the process, but right now it's our only way to survive. And they're like, we have the beaches, we have the hotels, we just open Because they never had a tourism industry, you know, until the special period. And it wasn't really by choice. It was sort of by economic necessity, right? So anyway, but now that the tourism industry has pretty much is really dried up in the last year and they live month to month economically. Um, yeah, their their trade with China is really important. And I think this move, this campaign to raise money to buy syringes from China for Cuba is really important because their, you know, their purchasing power has been so greatly reduced. Uh, bring in some more comments. Uh, Kathy Jung writes, I'm always so moved when I hear about the Cuban literacy campaign. Thank you, Catherine. Following Michelle's point, China's poverty alleviation campaign in this recent decade reminds me a lot of the Cuban literacy campaign, sending resources, but especially people, young people from the prosperous cities, uh, Havana or China's developed cities, the impoverished regions to truly see and experience the poverty of their own people. This kind of campaign is incredibly important to fostering unity among the historically unequal developed parts, the rural and urban folks of a country, transforming its people into new human beings in a revolutionary process, which it really seemed like based on what those Cuban literacy teachers had said. I wonder what kind of movement we need in this country in order to begin this process too. Also, I believe the People's Republic of China, a relatively young country even then, during this time supported the Cuban literacy campaign by sending kerosene lanterns to Cuba so that the teachers could teach at night. Yes. Thank you for that, Kathy. I met Kathy in Havana when she was there studying. So um, yes, thank you, thank you, thank you for saying that. China, People's Republic of China sent a huge number of kerosene lanterns to Cuba to support the literacy campaign. And I think in early 1961, they might've sent them, um, probably early 1961, I'm curious about that, that timeline because the, the, the pilot teachers were out in 1960, but they didn't have the lanterns yet. It was sort of just getting off the ground. People's Republic of China sent maybe 100,000 lanterns and all of the literacy teachers talk about that. So they went up into the mountains with a backpack, a hammock, two workbooks, you know, it's study guide, uh, a, a class plan, and it's sort of a teacher guide. And I had one of those original teacher guides around here. I really wanted to find it, show it to you all this morning and read some segments of it because it's really, it really, really beautiful. Um, and the kerosene lantern. And they would teach by the light of the kerosene lantern at night. The, the young teachers were, uh, they worked there, you know, they work with farm, the, the farming families couldn't just stop farming. So the young teachers actually worked and you see in some of the photos, like they would farm along with the students, they learn how to farm or did their best to learn how to farm. They work with them in the daytime, you know, and, and taking care of kids, you know, cleaning, cooking, doing laundry, there's a whole lot of pictures of the teachers doing laundry, you know, and, and helping being a part of a family, of a rural family and rural community. They would work in the daytime and teach classes on nights and weekends. And teaching classes at night was only possible by the uh, lanterns that were given by the People's Republic of China. And that was the only light source or the main light source in the homes and communities where they went to teach because most of these communities had no electricity. And people go to sleep when the sun went down. 
and get up when the sun came up. Thank you for that, Kathy. Uh, another comment from Nandita, she writes, I think sometimes for the younger generation, it is difficult to imagine a different society or a time when the movement was strong. I know for myself, I have grown up only in a time of retreat and pessimism. This is why videos like these are so important to show that the ideas we talk about have had concrete manifestations in the masses of people and can have them again. This is also why it was so emotional, emotional for me to visit Cuba because I had never seen a society without beggars, for example. I remember seeing the airport and thinking of how they sent troops to Africa from these four or five small blue buildings. Thank you for this discussion. Thank you. Uh, Jeremiah writes, uh, Catherine, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge of the Cuban revolution in these videos. Could you talk about how your films on Cuba have been received in the United States and other places? Thank you. Um, so the Maestro film, so the clip I just showed you five minute, we just released that last week in honor of the anniversary of those first pilot brigades. Um, those two women are both still alive. That interview was filmed about 10 years ago. And because we did such a huge sea of interviews, then you have sort of the opposite side of the problem, which is like, how do we get them all out? Um, and I felt a big like, uh, you know, responsibility to, for these beautiful teachers to see that their stories have been honored and are being shared. And there was no better moment to do that than on their anniversary. So we launched that short on the April 22nd last week, um, which was also exciting because it was in the midst of the 60 year anniversary of the Bay of Pigs. So we could talk about this connection between, you know, the Bay of Pigs illiteracy campaign, the platform of the Cuban revolution. Um, so, so that one is very, very new, but our, the earlier film, the Maestro film was uh, released 10 years ago. And I was expecting a lot more pushback than I've gotten in the US. We've shown that film all around the US quite a lot. And I've brought three different women from the film to show it, women that are in the film. Uh, we brought the head of the literacy campaign, a really powerful, uh, amazing woman named Luisa Campos, that there's actually a video, she sent a video from Havana this week that was like 15 minutes long, her own words about just giving an overview of the literacy campaign. It's being subtitled in English right now and I can send that to you all um, in the coming days, whenever it's ready. Luisa Campos came and toured with the Maestro film um, and a number of young, younger generation Cubans as well. Um, so I, I think I was experiencing a lot more pushback on the film and it I got a little bit sometimes, um, but not so much. And I, I'm not, I'm not even sure, like I have some ideas about maybe why, but I think that um, it's related to what you were just talking about, about hope and vision, and that it really is a path somehow being, you know, we tried to honor this deep truth that the Cuban revolution is a path of liberation and love. And I think that revolutionary you know, that's one of the things that uh, imperialist media and education and messages try to uh, take away from us. So to share like stories, you know, it's not analysts, it's not fancy graphics. It's like real people talking in first person telling their stories. 
and they are so full of life and they're so you know they're here they are so a lot of these interviews again were done 10 years ago we were talking with them about something happened 50 years earlier they talk about it like it was yesterday yesterday they know people places names time of day dates that things happen they're talking about it with this intensity that's like it happened yesterday and that just um it kind of melts away so many of the lies that we get told here so um yeah and i hope i mean i feel like for me i hope my, my greatest hope with this film i mean the master film's half an hour long right so it's a simple it's a very straight it's a, it's you know it's not like fancy you know no this is like a grassroots production right yeah. but um I tried to, through this film, be able to help contribute to helping people rethink what, you know, the lies we've been told about Cuba, but also to rethink the lies that we've been told about the United States and the world and what's possible. So I would hope that every person in the US would see this film and think, we could do this here, of course we could do this here. Of course we can do this here. Why can we not do this here? It's so straightforward. You know, it's not impossible. It's not complex. Yes, it takes resources, but it's not principally about resources. Mm -hmm. You know, we miss direct resources in the United States, but it's not principally about resources. I mean, yes, right? But, and so much more. It's about what are your priorities? How are you organizing? Who are you empowering? Who are you liberating? What are you doing? You can do so much with so little and Cuba proves that. So Cuba really exposes the lie. So uh, yeah, so I think that's what we're trying to do with these films. I, I also just wanted to say what I think is so beautiful about the films that you're doing is we always have a saying in African-American studies, we always say, you can't talk about the people until you talk to the people. And so you have to get the people's perspective on the reality, because if not, somebody else, is, somebody else can just manipulate the perspective they want to give you. So I think that is something that's so beautiful that I saw in your films, and what you're articulating is the importance of going to the people and getting their perspective. And it also reminds me of, of Griots and African societies who were really had, they were like, you know, walking libraries. They used to memorize thousands and thousands, almost like encyclopedic memories um, and telling African history. And so the people you were talking to had these, these so such vivid memories reminding me of Griots and African culture. Um, and I think, I think that's really interesting too. It also reminds me of the model that you're describing about how they were working in farms during the day. And, and it just reminds me so much of the importance of community, community building and family. Uh, and the fact that, you know, that model is a model, I think, in some ways could be used to help rebuild cities. Uh, we, we, you know, we, we saw with COVID-19 that the ways in which black and brown communities were disproportionately being affected uh, by racism, white supremacy, not having access to certain foods and can't afford certain organic vegetables. And so I was thinking about how that the Cuban model in some ways really could be a, a model that we could utilize here in Philadelphia. Uh, to rebuild communities, but also to provide gardens, you know, organic gardens. I, I can't remember the sister's name, Doc, who uh, does her gardening. She has all these beautiful gardens, and, and MIT stole her model. Do you remember the sister's name? 
Zakia? Zakia, yeah, Zakia. She always talks about the gardens. Yeah. <laughs> and I was just thinking about as Catherine was talking about the ways in which the holistic model uh, of community building, but you know, healing practices, the ways in which you create natural bonds with people, uh, you know, and, and the importance of that connection uh, and holistically building things together. And I think so oftentimes we get so isolated in our focus and in our purpose that that model is so beautiful to see the ways in which that community is always doing everything together, learning together, building together. Uh, thriving together, eating together, you know, uh, and I think that's really, really important to remember. A uh, comment from Emile Palmier, he writes, uh, the example of Fidel going personally to help command the armed resistance, the Bay of Pigs invasion, showed the Cuban people their trust in him was well-grounded. It also reminded me of something Che said, quote, it is not a matter of wishing success to the victim of aggression, but of sharing his fate one must accompany him to his death or to victory. What was that last quote? Uh, it is not a matter of wishing success to the victim of aggression, but of sharing his fate. One must accompany him to his death or to victory. If, if I remember correctly, I think this is a chase statement on solidarity. Like what is the meaning of solidarity? Is sharing the fate of someone in victory or defeat. Thank you. Uh, comment from Catherine Blunt. She says, I want to bring the panel back to the question concern raised by Purva Chatterjee. What are your thoughts about the possible ramifications for the Cuban revolution because of college educated slash Western impressed youth who may have lost their historic perspective, perhaps their association with their elder generation and their fervor to protect the revolution? Yes, thank you. Um, there is so, so I think some of the critics right now, I don't know that I would like, rather than seeing them as college educated, I think it's more that they come from families of privilege, historic privilege, um, because there are many, many people who are from working class families and or black families in Cuba who are getting college educated now and putting their lives and their education at the service of the nation and their communities. Um, so I was having a really interesting conversation with some of the folks that are doing the belly of the beast project I was telling you about last week. And I was asking them sort of a similar question because there's, you know, there, there is a, a debate inside Cuban society. Like there are debates, there are debates about, you know, what are we building? How do we want to build it? In you know, what does it mean in terms of like concrete economics? How do we survive uh, in the sea of global, global capitalism with the history of colonialism and underdevelopment? And so there are a lot of diverse feelings about that. And yes, there, it, there is a US identified, there is a white identified, a European identified and a US identified presence in Cuba. Um, a lot of those people try to leave and go to Miami or, you know, Madrid or wherever. Um, this is an issue. And I think, but in terms of race and it overlaps with the race question and it's been become a lot very complex in terms of the race question in recent months, I'll tell you about in a minute, but well, it's become, so because 
working class people and Afro-Cubans have so overwhelmingly supported the revolution from day one and through the decades and into the special period, et cetera. The part of the work of the war on Cuba is specifically targeting those folks. And it's happening a lot now. Um, so, there, so there's been some sort of attempts at making inroads to a, um, like racial justice organizations that are very cr critical of the Cuban revolution. And that is a part of the landscape and that's happening. At the same time, there is an ongoing and consistently evolving conversation around racial justice happening in Cuba that is advancing in really important ways right now. And it's hard to advance you know, they're struggling to advance uh, discourse and dialogue and ideas in a time of such intense material um, difficulty and COVID. And, but this has been going on for decades, 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 decades. I mean, really since the beginning of the revolution, right? But because the early revolution policies said, you cannot be, you know, Fidel Castro himself said, you cannot be a racist and be a revolutionary. Like if you support the revolution, you, you, can't, you cannot be racist. This is a, a nation now for all and like racism no, not allowed, you know, ching. But the, because racism is more pernicious than that and it's more complex and it's, you know, certainly there were a lot of lighter skinned or white identified, or maybe you would say today white people in Cuba or have white privilege in Cuba critiques, uh, notwithstanding of that term. Um, but there are, there were ways in which white supremacy and colonialism and the vestiges of like a color caste system remained in the minds, especially of the lighter skinned people, right? And um, the long journey to uh, detoxify from that is still happening in Cuba yeah. right now. There is a black consciousness me. movement. There yeah. is a black arts movement. There is a racial justice movement. There is a black cultural pride movement. And these things, they overlap. They are diverse. There are scholars. There are you know, cultural workers that are part of this, there are historians, there are a lot of community folks and community organizations that are talking about black consciousness, black pride, black culture. And for this to be embraced by the revolution is really important. Just, and that's happening now. And these folks connected to the Obsession, um, I put them in the chat, but you like you could Google search them, right? And they and uh, Dua Obsession is one at, of the organizations, but there's now like a national commission. I think a lot of people were saying, you know, you can't just make a law. But can I say something? Can, can you hear me, Joe? It's a little low. I, I think we can hear you. Yeah, but I wanna say this. Uh, first of all, Cuba is not the United States. Uh, and the Cuban Revolution has nothing to apologize for to the United States. And um, 
you know, just like the American ruling elite has become multiracial, one of the worst things that could happen for Cuba is for the Black Lives Matter movement and its ideologues to be introduced into the Cuban culture to produce divisions in a nation that has fought for solidarity in its own way of working out its own problems. So uh, black arts movement, beautiful thing, ongoing critique, self-critique of shortcomings and mistakes, good. But the Cubans don't need the United States or US people, black, white, or otherwise, to tell them or to instruct them on how they should go about solving their problems. Let the US people stay here and try to solve the deep crisis that we're embroiled in. So that's what I would say. Um, I have very little respect for the ideology of identity politics and the attempt to export this all over the world and to treat Cuba as though it is a child and uh, a 25 year old just got out of college thinking he or she, because they are black in America, can go to Cuba and teach them as though a new quote literacy campaign conducted by Americans, whatever their race is, is what Cuba needs. By the way, and keep all books on race, if, except Baldwin, Du Bois, and the previous generation, this current stuff, the best thing the Cubans could do, trade, yes, remittances, yes, but let America keep its culture in America. Cuba doesn't need it. Yeah, Catherine uh, Blunt writes, agreed, Doc. Fidel said, black blood flows freely through our veins. It does. And uh, yeah, I, I think this is an important point, the ways in which uh, the, the U.S. state and the um, academia and uh, the me media, which are both basically extensions of the U.S. state, are used to try to infiltrate uh, revolutions like the Cuban Revolution and uh, particularly, like like we were saying, waging war on the minds of the people, particularly the young. Um, and I think people are mentioning college just because often in these societies, it's professors and um, intellectuals who are uh, sometimes can lose their connection with the masses and be influenced by these ideas coming from the West. I mean, this is a process that you see all around the world. Sometimes. Uh, <laughs> He said sometimes. Oh, you know, sometimes. Well, you know, you would hope that in a revolutionary society, the intellectuals are, at least they have pressure on them from the leadership to stay connected to the masses. So at least I would imagine it would be less. But anyway, um, uh, the, the U.S. has these institutions like the NED, National Endowment for Democracy, and uh, USAID, and all these fronts through, uh, through which to funnel money into different supposedly grassroots groups or political groups or educational groups or even musical groups uh, in places like Cuba to try to, from within, subvert um, the revolution. And then whenever we hear about it in the US media, it's always like, oh, they're clamping down on freedom of speech. Oh, they're not, they're being intolerant, but you have to see it in its context, the kind of war that's being waged. 
And, uh, and from the other direction, we have to work so hard to even get any information, accurate information about Cuba or, or learn any of the ideas that are being developed there here. So it's very, the, that power imbalance is very, uh, you know, lopsided, so. And that's also used as a method of deflection too and scapegoating, you know, anytime you want to scapegoat what's happening in America, you know, you hear Biden talk about, oh, China, 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 China. But hold on, dog, we, we, are you going to address the issues in America? You want to keep scapegoating all these other places, but you want to, but it's, 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 a, it's a very, very peculiar thing to witness America doing just as you're describing, John. And I agree with you completely uh, in the ways in which that is very strategic and tactical in America to deflect, to deflect, to deflect, to reframe, to reframe, to reframe, to use this, as Doc says, this language of Black Lives Matter. I mean, I, when, I, when I listened to Biden's, you know, his speech the other day, I had to drink some whiskey. <laughs> That's it. That's it. I mean, we, well, I won't get into it too much, but I, I, I'm just trying to escape. Go. I said, well, damn, I mean, this brother is really up here acting like he's the savior of the world. Right. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> I'm thinking of the last post, the white man's got a God complex, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, Hey man, whiskey, some, some whiskey. You might need a lot to get through that speech. <laughs> I just didn't want to admit to how much I drank. That's all. <laughs> I had to just read the text. I couldn't get through the video. <laughs> anyway, before we get to that, one more comment from Kathy Jiang. She writes, uh, thanks again. And to add, and many others, and to add, I and many others are hopeful about the fact that one of the good things emerging out of the last few years of US withdrawal from Cuba is that China has emerged and solidified as Cuba's biggest trade partner, a fruitful relationship historically and going forward. Everywhere I went in Cuba, everywhere, everyone noticed that I was Chinese, even when I mentioned I was American born and said that they were grateful from the bottom of their hearts for China's partnership with Cuba. I saw Chinese, sometimes Russian and from other countries, refrigerators, buses, televisions, and more everywhere I turned in Havana in 2019. Yeah, I think there's that famous, and I forget how many years ago, China forgave $10 billion of Cuban debt. Like $10 billion of Cuban debt, um, which we know is so different from like, like at the Bangladesh event just last week, when Professor Soban said in Bangladesh, they needed, to, they needed extreme funds for this giant bridge over this giant river. And they had two choices. One was the World Bank, I think, which had certain conditions that Bangladesh would have to follow if they wanted that money. But they had another option too, which was from China, which didn't have those conditions. And then you have here in Cuba, $10 billion, $10 billion of debt forgiven by China. Yeah, I mean, and as we we're speaking about the, uh, again, the economic blockade of the US on Cuba, uh, and yeah, I mean, a lot of it is also the U.S. will sanction other companies and even banks, ironically, although we're supposed to believe in capitalism and everything, the all ideas of free enterprise and free trade go out of the, you know, we forget about them when it comes to U.S. Uh, foreign policy and imperialism. But so, you know, uh, penal huge penalties on banks that will even do transactions between Cuba, the Cuban government and other countries or other companies. But 
Uh, well, we are learning from uh, the Bangladesh event we organized with this, some very eminent uh, economists uh, from Bangladesh and India that uh, now some of the biggest banks on the, in the world are no longer in Wall Street, but actually in China and our state-owned banks. And similarly, what we're reading about the emergence of this digital yuan, uh, which it, because currently a lot of trade is done through this SWIFT, which is like another kind of digital program and that U.S. tries to put sanctions and, and things on. And of course, the dollar being the currency. So this I think a lot of this gives new opportunities to countries like Cuba, which have been heavily sanctioned and blockaded by the United States. And it's allowing these kinds of partnerships, I think, uh, to emerge with some of which have have already been built on, as uh, others are saying, the trade between Cuba and China or Russia and um, even uh, maybe Venezuela with the oil and Iran with the oil. So, so I think those are all possibilities of, of the world moving forward, regardless of what kinds of complexes and posturing and uh, insanity is coming there from the U.S. leadership in Washington. You know, small, oh, sorry, um, small correction. China forgave $10 billion in debt around the world and Cuba made up about half of it. So actually 5 billion. But just a correction. You'd never yeah. get that from the IMF or the World Bank. That's for sure. I mean, a lot of times the conditions that they put on the countries is that they privatize their utilities, like water, and they, you know this, these structural adjustment programs that are pressured by the United by yes by the United States, you know, backing the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund or the global lenders are just devastating to countries. Absolutely devastating. But I am so sorry that I need to go now, you all. I am so thankful that uh, to join you this morning. I told my family I'd be on for an hour and I've been on for two hours because I can't pull myself away. This is a really meaningful, um, wonderful discussion. And I'm thankful for you all as a free school and for, and for inviting me to be part of it today, to join you today. So to be continued, yeah. to join, join you again on future moments, listening and exchanging and all of that. So thank you. Thank you, Doc. Thank you. And you come back, hopefully. Okay. Yeah, thank, thank you, you all, so all of you all. It's really beautiful what you're doing. All right. <laughs> Workers of the world unite. That's my last statement for today. <laughs> Workers of the world unite. Happy International Workers Day. Let's keep fighting. See you later. All right. Yeah. Sorry, Vincent. What was that? <laughs> oh no, I, I was just gonna say that I, I think just this this conversation of of the economic sanctions in conjunction with this issue of sort of ideological penetration of Cuba from the U. I think they're very related in the fact that, you know, we don't want to have anything to do with you economically, but we're going to send all these, you know, Black Lives Matter ideologues to Cuba to sort of educate you ideologically. And I think, you know, it makes it makes me just think how important it is that we're engaged in these forms of ideological struggle from the position of Americans in the United States, because as you know these sanctions work less with the rise of asia in relation to cuba i think that ideological element of the u.s state becomes all the more important in kind of peddling these these different perspectives and you know i i guess related to that 
just this issue of kind of the role of youth in in social movements you know because because especially after the collapse of the soviet union we see this rise of these kind of global youth movements um as you know neoliberalism kind of takes over the whole world and it is such a different relationship to the people than these young people who were doing the literacy campaign in the early 60s in cuba i think um you know, I, I know we talk a lot about how, um, you know, there is this approach of a lot of American youth who feel like they have everything to teach and nothing to learn from the people. And I think that's what you find being exported through identity politics and other programs like this. But it would really be a shame if that got more traction in Cuba, precisely because of this alternative intergenerational kind of relationships they fostered through the literacy campaign, where it was young people doing a form of education. But I guess as Catherine was saying, a lot of them felt like they learned much more than they actually taught in that process. Yeah, it's like what you were saying about education as self-defense and I forget where, but I think maybe it was Ho Chi Minh who also said, like it was Ho Chi Minh who said one of the most, like the first things socialists will have to do in Vietnam and like it's an overlooked thing, but very important is a moral education. But also, I mean, literacy, but also the moral part of education or the education of the human heart. Um, and like that if you wanna build a strong cadre, you have to remember the, not just the Marxism and the Leninism, but the moral education an education of sacrifice and selflessness to learn from the people. Um, and it also reminded me of the Bangladesh event from last week where like Professor Soban talked about the asymmetry today. That was really interesting where he said that um, like you have an asymmetry where the US may economically be a second class economy, but militarily they're still very strong. So you have a world situation where countries are still like are immensely have a lot of military strength, but maybe not as much economic strength. And then I think it was it was Jahan and Meghna who were like, and then add in ideology as well. I mean, education is ideology is both a weapon, but also a method of self-defense. So then it just there's a lot. It's a very chaotic world situation as well. But also, like you were saying, Vincent, the ideological part is so important, not just for Cuba, but also here in America, how important it is for like the people of America to ideologically be clear or just, I don't know, to pick up ideological arms, not be so ideologically disarmed by identity politics. And yeah, just how important that is, especially since the US is still militarily, um, has like, I mean, it has 700 bases, it still has that hand to play. Uh, yeah, def uh, another comment from Catherine Blunt. She writes, uh, I was in Cuba in 1978 and China was a big trading and education tr and training partner back then. College students and workers spoke about that support with enormous respect. Um, but yeah, also uh, agreeing with what uh, Emily was saying um, that I think this is, a, this is a very important point that the U.S. is uh, definitely the rise. Asia has a strong economic rise. Uh, obviously, that's that's clear to everyone now. Even Biden is admitting it. Um, but the U.S. has the military strength and willingness to do destructive things with the military, um, and also 
but crucially along with that, this ideological power, which still is there, which is, the, which is academia, which is the media, which is the illusions of US society, which that can be projected around the world. But it, even you know, domestically, I think, again, you know, if we bring back to that speech, uh, to, to Biden's recent speech to Congress, pretty much you see all that there, that attempt to use ideology, attempt to use identity politics, attempt to use promises of the American dream, um, a talk about democracy versus autocracy. Um, and I think that's their attempt, both internationally and domestically, um, that's what's being waged. So that's why uh, this, is, this is such a key struggle, this ideological struggle now. And for us to be waging it within the US is, a, I think, a great act of solidarity for all the people around the world. But also, uh, I mean, the thing that can save the people of the United States from being caught up in the uh, plans of the ruling elite. Also, Stephen Palmier writes, the courageous example of the free school honors the working class on a special day. Since you brought it up, Jahan, uh, you know, Biden's speech uh, has to be looked at or commented upon. And um, if I could just say a few things about it, uh, obviously he didn't write it. Uh, and as you mentioned, Joe, he even did a poor job reading the teleprompter. Uh, and as Brandon Stanford mentioned, he had to drink a number of shots of whiskey, which I didn't even know he drank, but anyway, you know, be careful with that, my brother. But uh, the speech was very important from the standpoint of our ability to identify uh, the, uh, where the ruling class is politically at this time. And you know, uh, the uh, corporate media uh, have been gushing over it, uh, trying to convince people that it was a brilliant speech and that, that it was brilliantly delivered and uh, saying in effect that uh, Joe Biden is our 21st century Franklin Delano Roosevelt and yeah, I guess I have to take a drink of whiskey after that one. But, um, and that, um, and Biden himself uh, in the start of his speech, and, and it is really politically more important than it is in terms of his proposals, which we should look at as economic proposals. But um, he situated himself as a president in a moment of crisis. And he said, there are three crises. I would add a fourth one. Uh, the three crises are the COVID uh, virus. Uh, the second is the economic contraction. And this is very important. Uh, on a level, he said, and, and I think he's accurate, on a level of the Great Depression of the 1930s. And the third crisis was, and he didn't put it this way, but I'll put it this way, the political crisis, uh, but he called it uh, the crisis of insurrection, of the threat 
of domestic terrorism um, and uh, that half or even more of white Americans who still have not accepted the election that elected him. Uh, and the fourth one is, and he, uh, but this was overarching in the speech, the fourth crisis is the crisis of whether or not the United States will be the single hegemon, the single superpower in the world, or whether the United States is prepared to live in a multipolar rather than a unipolar world. So there are four crises. Uh, but I think Biden in effect is saying what the free school has been saying for maybe five years now, uh, that uh, this is a, uh, a general crisis. I think we use the word a comprehensive systemic crisis. Uh, and the reason we emphasize and underline systemic, because it's a way of saying an election, a president, even a set of, and I would say this, reckless macroeconomic policies cannot uh, reverse this crisis. Uh, again, it is systemic and because it is systemic, it is existential. It is an existential crisis of the system. Can they mediate it? Can they soften it? Can they prolong the inevitable? Uh, that's a big question. I know Biden and his administration want time. They want space. They want the American people to give them, well, another year of majorities in the Senate and House and four years, if not more, to stabilize the system. That is what they're asking of the American people. And they have to sell their political line to the American people, which is in my mind, the point of ideological contention between let us say us and what goes, goes for the American left. I would say the entire American left have ideologically collapsed in the face of the Biden administration. They believe everything, they buy everything that they say without understanding the whys, the wherefores, and the objectives of this. Uh, just a couple of things. The reference to uh, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the New Deal is very important because it is a backhanded way of acknowledging the depth of the crisis. At the time of the Great Depression, and it was a world depression, the greatest uh, a depression, economic collapse in the history of capitalism, set off by the Wall Street uh, collapse. By the way, people don't get this. Three years before the election of Franklin Roosevelt, so three years transpired before Roosevelt comes to power, initiating these policies which change capitalism. Not fundamentally, but change capitalism with social security, unemployment, 
uh, compensation, the right to organize, for unions to organize, um, and, and other uh, social benefits to the people. Uh, on the one side, it is to save capitalism. On the other side, it is to soften the anger and potentiality that the working people might take things into their own hands. Uh, and so to defend the rule of the ruling class, the ruling class had to modify its relationship to the broad masses of impoverished, unemployed, and uh, disen uh, disenchanted masses. Well, Biden, in a certain sense, is attempting to do something like that. The anger and alienation among the people is unprecedented, perhaps even greater than at the time of the Great Depression. You wouldn't know this if you lived in certain neighborhoods, let us say, of Philadelphia, or if you lived in Manhattan, or if you lived in certain neighborhoods of Chicago, usually around a university or around uh, a gentrified neighborhood. You know, everything is good or more or less good. But if you go beyond these boundaries, the anger and disengagement from the system and even hatred of the ruling elite grows and intensifies every day. Biden knows this. When I say Biden, I'm talking about his administration. It's unclear what he knows or what his brain is able to process at all. But he as the, uh, the signature, the, uh, uh, what defines this presidency. So they know this. They realize that things could get worse. Uh, now, FDR knew this. The difference is that, at least in FDR and, um, and Biden, Biden has a history first of all, of supporting neoliberal policies. He is one of the worst abusers of working people and black folk. So when he says neoliberalism has failed, and he, he said that in the speech, what he's also saying is he is a failure, okay? The other thing is that it was the Clintons who, let me just say parenthetically, there is a puppeteer or group of puppeteers behind this presidency. Biden is not in control. So the question is who, I mean, you know, we can speculate um, the Clintons politically have something, have a hand in this, uh, uh, agents and forces, elements, uh, loyal to the Clintons politically and have been, who have been for many years, have something to do with shaping the politics of this administration. Uh, certainly uh, a lot of the day-to-day -day operatives uh, in this administration come from the Obama presidency, uh, which was linked back to the Clinton 
presidency and the Clinton uh, political establishment. And so we have this uh, genealogy uh, from Clinton to Obama to Biden. Uh, and this is a very important thing as the infrastructure, the political infrastructure of this presidency. So when he says neoliberalism fails, he says that uh, 35 years or more of US economic policy has been a failure. And uh, to use maybe a little hyperbolic language has been a crime against the working people of this country. Because at the end of the day, there's greater inequality. There was the great uh, financial collapse of 2008, which led to working people losing their homes, losing their jobs. They have never recovered from that. But then in this neoliberal uh, reset, <laughs> reset, we know that word. In that reset, a part of that was the 1994 Crime and Anti-Terrorism Act of 1994, which according to the book by Michelle Alexander, The New Jim Crow, there's so many ironies going on here for the Biden administration to use New Jim Crow apropos election laws in Georgia and other places. Uh, is really hyperbole, but the new Jim Crow that Michelle Alexander talked about is the Crime and Anti-Terrorism Bill of 1994 uh, put forward and advanced uh, by none other than Joe Biden and fully supported by Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton which according to Michelle Alexander, imprisoned more black people than were enslaved in the 1850s. One could call it more than a new Jim Crow, it was almost like a neo-slavery, which impoverished the black community. Usually you have two breadwinners or hopefully two, you know, now all or good part of the young men are taken out of the community. And then in that same year, uh, the uh, bill advanced by the Clinton administration, the Welfare Act of 1994, which for the first time overturned a New Deal, i.e. Franklin D. Roosevelt uh, 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 program and uh, benefit welfare saying, and this is Clinton and Biden in the Senate, saying that uh, people on welfare now had to work, usually at sub-minimum wages for their welfare checks. That's the policies that Biden, in some ways, without enumerating the policies and his responsibilities for them, he's saying they failed. This new policy harkens back to an economic theorist named John Maynard Keynes. Keynes you know, wrote a book called The General Theory of Employment, Interest, 
and money. Money is the last one. Each, each of those is very important, uh, but money is very important uh, in this time, given what is uh, an impending, perhaps collapse of the value of the dollar in international trade and investment. But what Keynes said is very simple. He said the free market doesn't work and can't work on its own. That the government must intervene to stabilize the economy, to guarantee that working people have incomes which drive the economy based on what they buy, what they consume. Uh, he also said that the government should go into debt to stimulate the economy. And he says for each dollar of debt, $3 of economic benefit or value could be uh, produced. Uh, he called it a multiplier effect. Well, of course, Keynes was talking in a period that had never seen massive government intervention in the economy. The most that most governments had, had, had uh, the debt that they had accumulated had been in war. So you did not have the indebtedness you have today. So Keynesianism today is not what it was in the 1930s. And it raises certain questions. Can Keynesianism even work today? Or will more debt on top of already existing debt merely produce hyper exaggerated inflation? The effects of which are not only domestic, but international. What Biden has proposed is $6 trillion of government spending. Now he says it will pay for itself by taxes on the rich and lowering uh, taxes on, um, on quote, earned income of corporations, that is profit. Well, or raising the taxes on profit on corporations and on rich people. Well, that's a, that's, that's a projection. There's no guarantee of that. But we do know that he's proposing $6 trillion on top of $3 trillion that the Trump administration has spent to stabilize the economy in the time of COVID. That's $9 trillion in one year. Okay, we're used to hearing that now. We do not, I mean, we're not processing the magnitude of this. This is unbelievable. But then it makes sense only if one recognizes the enormity of the crisis and the economic crisis, you know, but also the political crisis uh, in the country. Um, yeah, yeah, just a couple of things. Um, I'll end quickly. I wrote down some notes here. But, you know, we in the free school have focused in on the political crisis, what we call a crisis of legitimacy. 
Can the ruling elite rule? Can they rule in the old way? Will the people accept their rule? This is the big question. And this is what Biden's speech is attempting to deal with and what his presidency is attempting to address. Can capitalism be remade in 2021 going forward in the ways that it was remade in the 1930s? Is the system so broken and so overweighted with debt already that more money will only exacerbate the problem. Put another way, is the cure worse than the disease? Or will the cure even make the disease worse? Will the chemotherapy kill the patient rather than uh, reduce the cancer? That's the big problem. Um, just one more thing. You know, we often talk about the ruling elite, the bureaucratic, managerial, intellectual uh, elites that uh, openly and not so openly manage and run the economy uh, and the society. We often talk about the role of the media and the role of the universities as part of the management uh, of uh, this, this crisis. And we often talk about the ideological and psychological uh, issues involved in managing a society in deep crisis, you know, and who controls the uh, mechanisms of ideological control, of ideological management, and thus who controls uh, collective social psychological processes. Uh, again, recognizing that in the immediate moment, the ruling class needs time. They want time, space to quote, remake and rebrand the capitalist system. And then there's the world, and then there's China, and then there's the uh, historic memory of the world's people, of all of the brutality and misery US imperialism and US militarism has brought upon the people of the world. And here we have the rise of China and the rise of Asia. And Will they give America time? Are they um, prepared to forgive US imperialism for what it has done in Korea, in the Korean War, what it did in Vietnam, uh, what it has done to Cuba, what it has done to other countries like Venezuela with its sanctioning uh, what it has done to Iran. Will the world's people forget what it did to Libya, what it did to Iraq, what it has done in Syria? Is the world 
prepared to forget. Or now with this opening, this other option, this China option, this South-South option, is the world prepared to move on very quickly to a transformed world that looks very different than the one we have now? The last point, um, with all of their talk about um, a, a new America, a new capitalism, a reborn uh, nation, a new culture of freedom in the United States, um, uh, with all of that talk coming from the Biden administration and from the corporate media, one thing is clear, they haven't given up on the war option. As Professor Sobin pointed out last week, their economic role in the world is declining, their ability to shape and reshape economic events, the dollar will decline even faster if the policies of spending and, and, and borrowing uh, go forward and inflation takes over the US economy, which devalues the dollar. Uh, uh, so they're declining economically, but they're ratcheting up militarily. And on two fundamental fronts, first Russia and secondly, China. Uh, now this is very important because it would appear that Russia does not, is not a competitor with the United States on the level of China. But yet the United States through the Ukraine, through the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, right on the uh, Northwestern uh, borders of, the, of Russia, which used to be a part of the Soviet Union, now are members of NATO, constantly putting military pressure on Russia. Uh, and the question is why? What is the point? And um, I, you know, I should tell you, the Russians uh, who have been whittled down from the Soviet Union and a population of about 160 million people looking westward at NATO and a European Union of something like 500 million aligned to a, uh, allied to a United States with 330 million. So 160 million looking at an armed uh, nations of 800 million. Their only option in war, if they begin to lose a conventional war to protect its borders and sovereignty, is to go to nuclear weapons, tactical nuclear weapons, uh, if not more. So pushing uh, up against Russia and the brinksmanship that the Biden administration has entered into in the first 100 days create circumstances that could lead to nuclear war and maybe 35 million people killed in the first round of exchanges. But then they're ratcheting up naval exercises in Asia, not only in the South China Sea and not only in the Taiwan Straits, but uh, on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, what all this will lead to, uh, no one can say. 
so we have a war administration with very little protest coming from the left. Uh, that's all I would say about Biden's speech. I think it was politically very significant uh, in the sense that, uh, not that it will fundamentally transform capitalism, uh, and that's not the point. It is to save capitalism and not that it will um, be for peace. Uh, and so we have to stay ideologically engaged and be a part of the political education of the people on these questions. That's all I have to say, Joe. Hey, uh, some comments, uh, Jake writes, hey doc, uh, thanks for explaining the debt question for 2021 and how much money is being thrown toward debt. I have a question, can you expand on how the amount of debt illustrates the crisis? What comes from this amount of debt? Can this amount even be found in the pockets of the rich? How will this amount of debt and crisis affect America's and Americans' life world? Well, just simply, Jake, great questions. And wow, um, you know, uh, part of the uh, idea of debt uh, became printing of money. And the printing of money has uh, two uh, sources, one the Federal Reserve and the other is the Treasury Department. Uh, but it is assumed that the government will have to repay itself for that. And the theory is that by putting money into the economy, and I should add that much of this money did not go into the economy, it went into military spending, but they would ratchet up uh, spending in the economy, like in the 2008 financial crisis, to save the banks and other big financial institutions. So, but then at the same time, and this is the craziness of trying to piecemeal hold the system together, they lower taxes on the rich and the big corporations. So you, you, the government is taking in less spending more, printing money and accumulating date, uh, debt uh, for its operations. So you have this big gap between what the government takes in and what it spends. And that big, that big gap is what we call debt. Uh, and it, it, it felt it could live with it. Politically, it could live with it. And it gave it, it gave the ruling elite another day. And they're always, frankly, to tell you the truth, they're only thinking short term. They're not thinking about the long-term effects of this tremendous debt. Now, they hope that interest rates on government debt will remain low. And that's a political decision made by the treasury and the Federal Reserve. That's why they try to keep the most conservative neoliberals on the, on, on the Federal Reserve or at the head of the Fed because they need low interest rates uh, in this time of borrowing. But yeah, I, I would say, uh, Jake, uh, we're closer to the end of this uh, 
than perhaps we've ever been. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the other thing real quick, Doc, is mm -hmm. Biden's going to raise the, the corporate income tax rate, not back to the 35%, which where it was, or higher. He's only going to go to the 28%, which means then where are you going to get the money? You're going to have to borrow it from who? The corporations. Not from the corporations. The, see, most of it, well, from foreign governments, yes, one. From corporate, to a certain extent, from banks, you know what I'm saying? And other people um, that invest in government bonds. So there is that, but there's the printing of money. And, and you know, I just have to say to Jake and, and, and uh, uh, Brandon, you know, they say they're involved in a new theory of money right now. And I, I, don't, I, I don't understand enough about the old theory of money or better yet, the practice of money or the way money is manipulated. And I, I certainly am not aware or don't know the new theory of money, but money is very important. How it is understood, how it is used, the new currencies and global relationships between currencies, which is a form of the relationship between nations and economies. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, if I could just add very quick, I thought the speech made a, a mockery of human suffering. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and in some ways, you have him talking about this is the end of trickle-down economics. But I'm not against millionaires and billionaires becoming billionaires. Well, that's a contradiction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're not going to fundamentally change capitalism at its, at its core. You're going to continue to produce it. You're just delaying the inevitable, like you're saying. I, I agree with you completely on that. Because you can't, it's a grave contradiction. Oh, we're going to build up from the ground up. Okay, so give us, how are you going to do that? Yeah, you didn't give us any. You didn't give us any uh, blueprint. Mm -hmm. You just you're just using rhetoric now. You know, so you're just using some of the language that is appealing to quote unquote progressives who were salivating over this speech because they didn't perceive Biden as being a progressive president. Mm -hmm. But it, I mean, well, one, how are you going to pass any of this? To begin with, yeah, right. you to get it through the Senate. No, you got you got these moderate these moderate. Uh, conservatives and Manchin and others, they're not going to vote for half of these policies. Mm -hmm. You know, so also you're miraculously going to figure out, but it is a neoliberal reset. I, I agree with you on that. I think that's the biggest, that's the biggest point here. It is a neoliberal reset. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it's trying to suggest it's not a neoliberal reset, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it's exactly what it is. It's just trying to be creative with language uh, in such a way to suggest to you that capitalism can be reset we just have to operate a little differently. And I think it runs a grave risk. I think it runs a, a, a risk of a, monument, a monumental collapse worse than we're experiencing right now. Because at some point, if you don't address, you said, I think you said it best, we were talking about, uh, is the cure worse than the disease? Will the cure make the disease worse? Will chemo kill the individual? And I think in some ways a neoliberal reset has that potential really, I mean, to 
but the, but I think this is where Emily's point comes in. If we can't do it economically this way, militarily, we'll figure it out that way. Running the risk of nuclear war, you know, running the risk of escalating tensions with Russia, with China. Oh, we will hold you accountable. I said, well, this is very interesting. It's so the talk was always about competition. Where is cooperation? Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. see, this, the future is not about competition necessarily. It's about how can we live? How can we build a world civilization? How can we coexist? But the American arrogance, the white arrogance, refuses to let brown and black men take leadership on anything. Right. Therefore, if China, if, if, if Yen takes over the, the value of the dollar, America's not going to accept that. Mm -hmm. You see, so, I'm, so this is very interesting to me, looking at what you said, how much money you're borrowing. When you've got to borrow six to nine trillion dollars, I mean, that is enormous. I mean, it doesn't even, you can't even fathom how much money that is only to try to reset neoliberalism. It's like, I mean, so I thought it was a mockery of human suffering. I thought that for him to go up there and talk about, you know, the new Jim Crow uh, and, and white supremacy, I said, brother, you are the architects. You know what I'm saying? What did you, what have you done for the last 47 years? You think, and as James Baldwin used to say, I can't believe what you say because I see what you do. <laughs> For 47 years, you've made a living, a, a very good living, off of literally locking brothers and sisters up, right. literally demonizing poor working class people. You made a living off, off of human suffering. And so in some ways, I have this unforgivable sort of approach to Biden that's deep in my, that almost, no matter what he does, it's unforgivable to me because now if you're not seriously trying to address the, the systemic problems of capitalism, you're just you know, striking new levels of subtlety about how you want to exploit people. I will give you some temporary relief. That's not, change. That's not systemic change. Relief is temporary. A lot of these policies, so you're not, I mean, so long-term, like you said, they're not thinking long-term whatsoever. The enormity of this crisis is both economic and political without question. I think it is a huge crisis of legitimacy because I don't see how they're gonna get any policies passed in that type of Senate to begin with when you have that many conservative Democrats that really are Republicans. Mm -hmm. So going forward, I don't think you, you, capitalism cannot be reformed. You're at a stage in history where it cannot be reformed. You see the ways in which China had used some capitalist things, but to, you know, so you see the difference between socialism and capitalism. How can we use it for certain purposes and how can we go beyond capitalism? I think China has been asking that question as, the, as based upon what they've been centralized as their priorities going forward for the last 50 or 60 years. But I think that's the point, is the cure worse than the disease? That's a hell of a thing that you said there, Doc. I, I keep going back, that's an enormity of this crisis. Is the cure worse than a disease? You know? Uh, just to add a little bit to uh, this question that Jake had also raised for everyone, just some figures. Uh, in October 2020, this is before uh, Biden put in any of this uh, new, uh, the, the new amounts of money they're going to be spent. So U.S., uh, total debt in October 2020 was $27 trillion. The, the total U.S. GDP in October 2020 was about $21.4 trillion. 
So that means that the debt to GDP ratio is over 100%, about 129% at the end of 2020, uh, which is a historic number mm -hmm. since World War II. Uh, and yeah, this Biden's bill is supposed to put in roughly, I think, $6 trillion so far, maybe adding even more. Uh, so you can consider the kind of contradictions facing the ruling elite are very difficult for them to unravel. Similarly, as Doc was saying, this Keynesian model, this is a huge question. Can it be implemented in this period? And Because the, the original idea was in this industrial age uh, and manufacturing and all of that stuff. But now we're in the era of globalization, both of industry and of finance. Mm -hmm. That's also important to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. Similarly, uh, with the theories of money, and this is an interesting connection to the left. We were talking about the capitulation of the left. Mm -hmm. So this uh, big theory, which has come out of uh, academia, economists in US academia, they call it MMT, modern monetary theory. And uh, from what I understand of it, basically they're just arguing that you don't really have to worry about inflation. You can spend as much as you want. A lot of these things have been myths. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's a simplified version of it. But now, interestingly, uh, I'm reading some articles saying that the Biden administration is going to be the administration of MMT. All these economists in the Biden administration are like, okay, now this makes sense. We're learning from this new theory. Now, the interesting thing is a lot of these MMT people they tried to kind of position themselves and say, okay, we are originally, we're, our original end was with the Bernie campaign because Bernie was promising all these things, you know, Medicare for all, et cetera. So that could be justified with MMT. Now, uh, if you saw the coverage of, the, of, of uh, Biden's speech, when Biden was going up apparent to the podium, apparently Bernie gave him a fist bump. And so the left I'm seeing on social media, they're saying, oh, this is it. Bernie did not win the primary, but he won the battle of ideas. Biden has taken on the Bernie platform, MMT, <laughs> social welfare spending, new Keynesianism. It's, it's all on. So this is what we're confronted with. This is the, this is the reaction of the left to this uh, Biden war administration. Similarly, I just want to alert everyone also again with foreign policy, right? The crisis of the U.S. elites is a crisis of foreign policy. What just happened, I think, yesterday, uh, former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani, who's also Donald Trump's lawyer, his, off his office was raided by the FBI. What was the reason it was raided? Because they're alleging that he had spoken with the Ukrainians when Trump was president, saying that they should investigate Joe Biden and his family's activities in Ukraine. Uh, because <laughs> as we, as Brandon was saying, Biden has done very well in these 47 years. Uh, and part of that has been overthrowing governments like the Ukrainian <laughs> government and installing his good for nothing relatives like his son uh, into positions where they're making $100,000 plus a month, uh, jacking up the utility prices of, of Ukraine, average Ukrainians by 200, 300%. Um, so all of that is at play. That's all the, you know, the context in which the speech was. Uh, given and then I would like to just read uh, Raju's comment on this, also giving a perspective. He's talking about uh, Edward Luce of the Financial Times argues that the Biden administration is not making any structural changes, which are anywhere as deep as FDR, but only pouring money into the system with the risk of inflation. Also, this started with Trump, not Biden. While there is talk of Keynesianism in the West, policies of austerity are still being promoted around the world. I think the Biden administration is attempting to institute a new kind of neo-colonialism. 
right. However, I don't think they have the requisite economic strength to be able to do that. Yeah. Jahan, real quick, I, I, that, that's an excellent comment. I got to segue out of here because I got to go teach from one to three o'clock. But I just want to say thanks for having me on. Uh, and I just want to make one last point, but I agree with you. They're trying to sell this political line to the American people. Right. We're trying to act like we're going to adopt progressive language. So even if we fail, we can blame the other party. We were really trying to go progressive. So we're not to blame. And I think that's a huge political maneuver on their part because the American left is so uncritical. They have ideologically collapsed in such a way mm -hmm. that you can sit there and listen and be that uncritical of what he is suggesting. And that is a huge problem. And I think why that's the point of ideological contention Doc is talking about and what you're highlighting so brilliantly along with Raju. This is not to be taken lightly. This has to be highlighted. This is a huge ideological point of contention and that's that clarity needed. But I love you. I got to run. I'll see you guys again soon. Take care. Take care, Brian. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, I also want to add again, referring to our uh, panel, which we did on Bangladesh, which if anyone hasn't seen it, it's on uploaded on YouTube. Now I highly encourage everyone to watch, but uh, one of the other uh, speakers, Professor Patnaik from India, he raised a thesis similar to ad addressing also what Edward Luce is saying. Mm -hmm. And he's also expanded on it in an article, which is entitled, Biden's rescue package may fuel growth in the US, but global finance will ensure the third world suffers. And so uh, this is also something at play is, while there is a lot of talk of Keynesianism here, uh, global finance will probably try to address the inflation issue, probably maybe try to outsource it to uh, the third world. And uh, even I was speaking with uh, Raju and he was telling me that the press in India, there was very little coverage of the stuff Biden said about domestic spending and programs. And mostly it was about what did he say about uh, the Asia, the military in Asia, the military presence, the confrontation? So they don't really want to sell this idea of Keynesianism to the third world. They want to sell austerity, it seems, to the third world. Now, whether they will be able to implement this kind of thing is an open question. And again, I think we have to also keep it in the context of uh, Klaus Schwab and the great capitalist reset, which we've been talking about for some time as well. Probably there's a lot of uh, connections there. Well, I mean, just on that point of the Great Reset, you know, Biden is calling his jobs plan a, a blue collar blueprint for America. And, you know, his, you know, I think he's finally got these advisors in his ear that are saying you have to reach out to Trump supporters, you have to reach out to white workers. Um, and so he's trying to talk about a jobs plan that is not going to require a college education, for example, it's going to be something that is, you know, um, for these people who didn't vote for him, but I, just on the implementation side of things, I don't think people are going to buy that. I mean, Biden's Biden's approval rating, I believe right now is like 11% with Republican voters, 94% with Democrats. I mean, and if, and, you know, it, it's just, it, it's such a stretch for him to be saying these things because he has this 47 year old track record. And to also be, you know, aligned with this larger Great Reset agenda, which we know is about essentially removing any kind of human labor in production in the West, 
how can you believe him that this is going to be a blue collar blueprint for America when people know that this is a broader agenda of the forces associated with him? So I, I just wonder if he's even telling the truth about those, about these kind of this jobs plan be, being those kinds of jobs. And even if he is, I don't think people are going to buy it at this point. Yeah, the Edward Luch article in the Financial Times, I mean, it's, it's definitely worth reading because he also breaks down the numbers and basically he argues that the, even the amount of money for the infrastructure is not going to be enough to fill uh, the unemployment and the amount of repairs and uh, new stuff that's needed. So, I mean, that's a part of the question. Um, but some more comments from uh, Eddie, he writes, it seems like this new monetary policy has almost given the war industry a blank check to inflict violence on the world to advance US interests. Has this only been possible after World War II when the world moved away from the gold standard with the Bretton Woods agreement to the dollar standard? I'm hoping and praying that financially the US is digging their own hole so they can't fund war. Does you wanna address that question, Doc? I think that's a very, I mean, you know, and as you said, you know, Keynes's, uh, you know, landmark work is a general theory of employment, interest, and money. Money is very important. And there is, and he says, a theory of money. There is no single theory of money. And money does not function in one way. I mean, the way we use it is not the way it's used by banks or hedge funds. And, um, and so, uh, or the way it's used by government, uh, which has the power to print money, uh, which is a big, a huge power over the economy, and frankly, a very huge power over a nation where its currency is now what gold used to be in uh, the industrial and mercantile periods of capitalism. Uh, just one thing, uh, Eddie said, uh, the United States and the world went off the gold standard in 1971. And that was a unilateral move by the Nixon administration. Uh, up until that time, and certainly after World War II with the Bretton Woods Agreement, gold was still the foundation of, of, uh, of international trade and the valuation of currencies. When the US went off the gold standard, you only had the US dollar, which then puts the US government and by extension, the US military in a position of almost absolute power over the world economy. And that's why in foreign affairs, they went to the weapon of sanctions and sanctions are as lethal as dropping bombs on nations. So it's all interconnected. But if the dollar loses its status, if we go to, let us say, as some say, a reform thing, a basket of currencies where the Chinese yuan is equal in global trade and investment to the US dollar, uh, or let's say strategic nations decide to use the uh, Chinese yuan, such as Saudi Arabia, rather than trading in what is called the petrodollar, they trade 
in the petro yuan. Uh, and hence we now can understand the rise of China, the peace, by the way, the peaceful rise of China is such an enormous threat. China doesn't have to have a army at all, but it does, of course, it has to have it for, you know, it does not have to invade any country to have enormous impact upon world economic relationships because the nations of Africa and a good part of Asia want an alternative to the World Bank and the IMF and the Western financial institutions, which have been exploiters, have been really have committed crimes against humanity. Uh, Jake writes, thanks doc, the rulers of this country are foolish. What are, what are the long-term effects of having all of this debt? Well, <laughs> what you, what's what you call the long-term? <laughs> I mean, what is the long-term? For the rulers of this country, the long-term is next year sometimes. They can't work out of this. These contradictions have accumulated over multiple decades. And when it gets to this point, I mean, I think the analog of a patient uh, who is terminally ill, you might uh, delay the inevitable, but the inevitable is going to happen. I, and you know, people like myself, of course, who have a radical view of the world are always looking for that final crisis of capitalism which will facilitate the transition to a new, more just world order. Uh, but I think in this instance, we don't because the crises, and Jake, I would say this, the crises are coming too close to one another. 2008 was just 12 years ago. And that was the greatest financial collapse since the, the, the Great Depression, the one that set off the Great Depression. Now, uh, 12 years later, we have another economic contraction. Well, set off not by housing speculation, but set off by a virus. But the virus could not have the impact it has were the economy not already vulnerable because of the accumulated contradictions in the system. And it's just like, you know, Jake, when you think about it, it's just all of like, all of this stuff wrapped up together. Um, and you can't look at it in a pure economic sense, although we have to understand the economy, but you gotta look at the politics of this, what people will accept. And as it appears, more and more of them are not accepting uh, the old bromides, the old uh, narrative that the ruling class will save you. On that point, there's a comment by Yusuf Kalfani. He says, "In my opinion, throwing money around won't solve this. Uh, won't solve the problem this government is facing, which this administration, neither this administration nor the mainstream media is talking about. Right. Which is that a mass of people don't trust the government, in particular the voting system. Some people understand that if your vote doesn't count, 
or the voting system is rigged against the people, then the political class isn't accountable to the people and can't be removed from office by the people. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I agree with him completely. But they're trying to get... That's where I, I, I agree with you, Seth, completely. Will money solve the crisis of the system? Answer, no. So since money is not the cure, it could be the problem, you know what I'm saying? Uh, then you have to come up with a new theory, a new narrative about money. Oh, don't worry about it. We don't have anything. Now we got a new theory. Money can help us. So money, money helps you, doesn't it, as an individual? You want more money, so we'll put money. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, I wouldn't want to be the ruling class at this time. There are a lot of uh, risks. First of all, their policies are very risky, like Jake said. Uh, it's almost as though they don't have any boundaries. Who's doing the thinking? That's what, you know, you read the Financial Times and people like, especially the opinion page, people like Edward Luce are saying, wait a minute. Come on, that, that ain't what works. I mean, or uh, Lawrence Summers, a Democrat. They would say, oh, he's a conservative Democrat. I don't know what he is. I mean, the Democratic Party is a conservative party as far as I'm concerned, but he's a Democrat. And he's saying, look, you can't throw money at a crisis of this type. And the other thing that they're saying, when people ask about the long and short term, you know, China has five-year plans. The United States can't have a half-a-year plan because you don't know where the crisis is gonna run. And you have to try to subdue or seduce the masses. <laughs> Would you wanna be in charge of this? I don't think so. Um, yeah, also what Yusuf was saying about the voting, it helps to put oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, all this whole crisis in Georgia and everything into context, because that was actually an important part of the speech too. And this talk of a John Lewis Voting Rights Act and this Voting Rights Act and that, you know. Um, and then if you saw if you saw the rebuttal also to this to the speech by this black senator from, uh, I think he's from South, South Carolina, South Carolina. Yeah, he talked about it. He said like I've been in I've been in the South my whole life. My, you know, black people have fought for the right to vote, but this thing is about regulating yeah. voting, these laws being passed. Yeah. And so don't, don't abuse the memory of the civil rights movement to, uh, you know, talk about, say this is voting suppression, but it's clearly a struggle over who will control uh, elections. And will people even have, like, will there be any, as imperfect as voting was, will that even be there as an outlet anymore? Or is it just a permanent government but Biden is there, Kamala Harris will be there until the ruling elite decides uh, they should go. And this is very important. Just one thing about FDR, uh, the New Deal, uh, which did not save the economy, actually it was war spending in World War II, and then after spending uh, to rebuild Europe after World War II that kept the United States' economy so vibrant. But the political point is it did change the politics of the country 
for at least a generation. In other words, when I was coming up, my grandmother and those would take pilgrimages to Franklin Roosevelt's summer home. And the reason I know is because they took my brother and I with them. And it was like they were going to a shrine of a saint. Uh, and, uh, there's, and then of course, with the Johnson administration signing and Johnson signing the civil rights acts, you know, oh my God. And then Obama, it's hard to break black people away from the Democratic Party uh, because it appears that everything of benefit and liberalizing the social uh, economy uh, has come from Democrats. And of course, the Republicans did become the white man's party to use uh, Glenn Ford's notion. And it did oppose most of the New Deal and the civil rights laws. But the question is, what is the Democratic Party today? If Franklin Roosevelt came back, would he recognize the Democratic Party once you cut through all of the rhetoric? I don't think so. We're looking at a different Democratic Party. We're looking at a different relationship between the Democratic Party as a party and the broad masses of people. It was also interesting when Vincent brought up the blue collar blueprint because not just the Democratic Party, but even the labor movement, for example, mm -hmm. is so different. And I think we talked about the whole cabal behind Biden how corporations plus the labor movement who is technically supposed to be against the corporations all joining together behind Biden. The, the AFL-CIO is like everywhere you see on social media, for example, you'll see like, I don't know, those quotes, like inspirational quotes by Biden about like, oh, we need the working people to blah, 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 be saved, blah, blah, blah. And I'll have this logo called Build Back, Build Back Better, which I thought was a Biden um, program or logo, but actually it's the, an AFL-CIO program run on behalf of Biden. And so there is the whole cabal, it's, they're all working together still. And um, like when Vincent was saying, it's ironic that Biden is running a blue collar blueprint as if they're anywhere close to working people. You could say the same thing for the labor movement, um, like the leadership of the labor movement as well and how separated they are from the people they're supposed to represent. Uh, some more comments. Uh, Eric Hudson writes, far too much hoping and praying and not enough radical grassroots organizing outside of the nonprofit industrial complex in these times that are ripe for revolt and rebellion. Uh, Samir writes, modern monetary theory pushes inflation towards stocks while avoiding inflation of commodities. So our stock market is worth more while being equally or less productive. Inflation is also a grave threat to the technology sector. People have less money to spend on technological services when their money is worth less. Ironically, the technology industry has created a technology called cryptocurrency, which, an, which is an alternative to gold as a hedge to inflation. Emerging digital currencies could act as a way to transfer capital to a new financial system when the old one dies. Could you read that last sentence again that he said? I 
Uh, emerging digital currencies could act as a way to transfer capital to a new financial system when the old one dies. Also, I would add another important part of uh, Biden's speech was about the need to uh, bring the semiconductor manufacturing back to the United States and secure semiconductor manufacturing and uh, also cloud like computing. So uh, because basically most of the semiconductors in the world are manufactured in Asia, particularly in Taiwan and South Korea, although China has also tried to be built, started to build up its industry as well. But uh, the US, all these US companies, they've mostly had to rely on uh, these Asian manufacturers of semiconductors. But now Biden is talking about, no, we got this, we got to invest in, put people to work and build, making these foundries here. But although I don't know how uh, feasible that is, but and at the same time, it's related to this fact that they're falling behind China when it comes to 5G. China, these Chinese companies, particularly Huawei, has built 5G technology in, um, you know, computing, which is just basically much another generation faster computing. The U.S. Is, doesn't have that technology yet. No U.S. companies have that yet. But they're trying to sanction other countries, including their own allies, to stop them from using the Chinese 5G. And of course, there's also it has to do with the security competition because the CIA and all these intelligence agencies, they can monitor information through uh, this, you know, the, this technology and computing. But if there's a 5G that's faster, they can't keep up with it. So it allows people to get off of their they're great. So that this technology is very, and he talked about the, the technological race, basically, and they're talking about new Sputnik moment, all that. A lot of that has to do with computing and the different parts involved in computing. And of course, you can include cryptocurrency and all this stuff. So, yeah. Um, heading towards almost 1.30, so we might want to start wrapping up, but I'll just read uh, some more comments from a little earlier. Uh, Kathy uh, had looked into uh, the National Endowment for Democracy in Cuba. She writes, looking at the National Endowment for Democracy website, listing the grants offered to Cuban projects, I see the following initiatives funded, empowering Cuban hip hop artists as leaders in society. <laughs> fostering a plural information space in Cuba, promoting inclusion of marginalized populations in Cuba. <laughs> These are all to be closely monitored as attempts at ideological penetration among young Cubans. Uh, and Nuri responded, that's so rough. It's so jarring to see the American academic frameworks so, so baldly overlaid over Cuba to criticize the revolution. Yeah, right. And uh, Sophie writes, uh, Biden said in the speech, the US is in a race with China to win the 21st century. No question. That was, yeah, that was pretty open. Um, I think that's uh, basically it for comments. Basically, I just wanted to have share one more quote from the speech, which I thought was important. He said, Biden said, Secretary Blinken, who's a Secretary of State, referring to him, Secretary Blinken can tell you, I spent a lot of time with President Xi, traveled over 17,000 miles with him, spent over 24 hours in private discussions with him. When he called to congratulate, we had a two-hour discussion. 
He's deadly earnest on becoming the most significant consequential nation in the world. He and others, autocrats, think that democracy can't compete in the 21st century with autocracies because it takes too long to get to consensus. And then he tied that in the speech to the protests at the Capitol and said this was a severe test for the United States and its unity. So you can clearly see with the speech how foreign policy and the threats from China and Russia are tied to the domestic crisis. And he also talked about, oh, terrorism is our number one problem. White terrorism is the number one form of terrorism. Again, referring to the yeah. Trump movement. Uh, and you know you can connect that to the arrest, the, the raid on Giuliani's office, the prosecution of all these protesters, and uh, what social media and stuff is doing as far as suppressing all dissent. So anyway, th this, is, this, this is the terrain we find ourselves. Oh yeah, and um, to get through it, uh, and I'm certain this, uh, that you know what this is, Jahan, you need a real sense of humor. Right. <laughs> you listen to some of these words of Biden and you know you just say hey you're saying this you of all people even though you didn't write it you you know but uh just <laughs> for this guy uh an unapologetic warmonger you know uh a, a unapologetic imposer of sanctions on any country. Uh, I mean, please give me a break. Uh, and I'm like the majority of American people who did not watch the speech, but still don't believe it. Even though they didn't watch it, they don't believe it because of who delivered it. So uh, it, it is a... Uh, you know, yeah. they, they used to talk about the clown car on the circus train. <laughs> Sometimes I think that uh, the Biden administration is the clown car. They can't be serious. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and they're, they're unwilling, and this is the other thing, unwilling to have a serious conversation about these very important matters with the American people because like all elites, they see the American people as not worthy of an honest discussion about all of this. And so they're going to have a transformation from above and they're going to save us uh, when, yeah, yeah, but anyway. Yeah, well, you know, I should add the, other good news that the left is happy about is that Biden is, you know, allowing critical race theory back into schools, <laughs> along with uh, suspending the 1776 commission that Trump had put together. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, we're going to be a great challenge to try to deal honestly with the people, and uh, all this is going to be supercharged. All this, well, you know, part of this, if I might say, and I'm not being cynical. Uh, if the Democratic Party in the short run is to win, they need an amped up, fired up black vote. And um, maybe they'll get it. I don't think they got it in 2020, certainly not in Philadelphia where they say to use their language, Philadelphia underperformed, which meant the black vote underperformed. So, uh, 
So all of this idea of uh, critical race theory, um, you know, it's a good question. Well, what is critical race theory? Anyway, I mean, maybe we should, if anybody has a definition I'd like to, to know about it, critical race. A lot of theories. Well, that's a joke. The whole idea, first of all, the idea of critical thinking in America where they're canceling people and shutting them down for life off of social media. Critical race, critical anything. Well, well, okay. I guess you guys might put me on the clown car. This is a joke. <laughs> critical race theory, okay. Right, right, right. <laughs> and we're going to be hearing a lot of names again pretty soon. Don't mention them, please. I won't mention them, but the Department of Education is mentioning them in their new draft rules for and guidelines for public schools. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, I guess we should move towards wrapping up then for today. Lot to be continued uh, between everything happens now and next week. So thanks everybody for joining us. Thank you, thank you, Joe. It's been beautiful. <laughs>